offensive rebound. And oh! Clear some space on the wall, kids! Thank you, Kate Scott and Allah Abdel Nabi. That was probably the dunk of the year last night. Offensive rebound off of a foul shot. Early in the game, Joel Embiid missed the uh, second of a pair of free throws, which the ball came loose and unleashed one of the one of the great poster dunks we have ever seen. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm Glenn Macnow, joined by my pal Ray Dinger. It is, among other things, a Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to get deep into discussion of that throughout the morning and uh, talk about those Sixers last night and the trade that they made. Good morning, Ray. How was the how was the snowy walk over? Oh, it wasn't so bad. It's a pretty pretty light, fine snow. Not too not too tough. Streets in Center City, the streets are clear, just a little wet. Sidewalks are fine. So, got some, uh, you know, got a little light powder on the grass in Rittenhouse Square. It's kind of pretty, atmospheric. So, uh, uh, it was a very easy walk, and you know, Super Bowl Sunday has a uh, just has kind of a nice feel to it. I'm uh, I, this is I always get I always get fired up for this day. So uh, I'm I'm ready to go. I, I enjoyed the Hurricane Schwartz report. That was really good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a lot different than yesterday. And then it's going to get up to 60 in the, during the week. So. Yeah. Yep. yeah. There yep. we go. Uh, we are going to get into the Super Bowl very soon, and right in this segment. But I do want to go over what was a, just a really nice win for the Sixers last night. Most importantly, Joel Embiid has the, has the triple-double of 40 points, Ray. 14 rebounds and 10 assists as they beat Cleveland. Uh, and Cavaliers a good team, by the way. Um, Sixers 2-0 and since the James Harden trade. And Ray was only the fourth time in franchise history that somebody had uh, 40 points and 10-plus rebounds and assists. This is not going to be a tough one for you. The other three times were all done by the same guy, and his name was? <laughs> oh, I'm guessing it's uh, Will Chamberlain. And the last time was 44 years ago. When Will, <laughs> listen to this, listen to this box score. 44. It was March uh, 1968. Will uh, playing for the Sixers against the Lakers, put up 53 points, 32 rebounds, and 14 assists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, you know we we had a, a week or two ago. You and I were talking about this and. People were talking about the season that Embiid was having and how dominant it's been in, in you know in so many ways and um, people were starting to ev- evoke the name of Will Chamberlain and beginning beginning tentatively to make those kinds of comparisons as you know of of Embiid to Will Chamberlain and you know I mean I I kind of what I you asked me and I just said well I wouldn't compare him to Wilt now because Wilt had a a career that I think kind of stands apart from almost any player that's ever played. But I said he's doing things now that are very Wilt-like. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that. And last night was a perfect example. There aren't a whole lot of guys that have played in the NBA that can have a game the way he had a game last night. That was that, <laughs> That's one that people are going to be talking about for a long, long time. Yeah, uh, and we are we are watching the peak of a career. We are... Well, maybe even not, but, you know, we are watching a season for the ages. It is a... it. Yeah, Wilt stood alone, but it's a it's a Wilt dominant season. It's an Iverson exciting season. It's a it's a Julius highlight season all in one, uh, and it is such a pleasure to watch. And and I don't know where the team is going to go this year. We'll get to that. But just watching uh, Joel Embiid in his prime is something. You know, Jared Allen, who's the Cavs center, is good. Is having a really good year, and Embiid destroyed him 
And the Sixers had a big win with a short lineup. You know, they're 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 still down, guys. Harden didn't play. We'll get to him in a moment. Uh, the Cavs were thirty-five and twenty-one going in. So you beat one of the teams ahead of you in the standings, right? Which is really impressive. And Ray, obviously, it's a great example of why Embiid is is to me the MVP front runner, and why the Sixers um, Daryl Morey so desperately wanted to get Harden to help win the title right now. Yeah, I I really don't even think that the MVP thing is even much of a discussion at this point, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I you know, at the at the risk of sounding very provincial and saying I'm, you know, I'm talking about the local guy. To me it's it's not even really close. I mean, the season that he's having. Uh, and you're seeing more and more awareness of that nationally as you read national writers and people in other cities. I mean, they're all kind of coming around to the fact that yeah, Embiid's the MVP and that's you know that's what really that's what really drove this trade was the idea that uh, this guy's a really special player having the greatest year of his career maybe the greatest year he's ever going to have so it makes perfect sense to to put the best possible team around him and give him the best chance of winning the championship because those opportunities don't come around every year you know Correct. but it's there it's there now when you have the best player in the league which they have at the moment then it's sort of incumbent upon the management to try and put the best team around them so you give your best chance of winning the championship. And they've done that. And we don't know, you know, we don't know where this thing is going to go with James Harden. We really don't. We can all speculate and guess and hope. But the fact of the matter is they're clearly a better team today than they were a week ago. And um, right now, I mean, you'd probably make them co-favorites in the East and to get to the finals. And then once you get in the finals, anything can happen. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, you think about the Eagles season in, you know, four years ago when, hey, you know, they did really well, but they were underdogs in every postseason game they played, and they ended up bringing home the Super Bowl trophy. So that is correct. If the, if the Sixers end up one of the top teams in the East, come out of the East, anything can happen. And it's just Embiid is so much fun to watch, and he's fun, and he's funny, and he's mature, and he when he speaks, he speaks wisdom, and it's it's just you know every once in a while it's a privilege to watch an athlete and, and when he's in our town, and Embiid is that guy right now. Um, just last thing on this on Harden arrived yesterday, uh, Ray. I know you're not on social media, but after our show, all of social media just was a buzz and a blaze. As Daryl Morey goes to the airport and Harden arrives in a little plane and gets off and they embrace and I think Morey puts up something like new era about to begin and it was it. He is here um, and they showed him last night during the game. They had a little video of his highlights and then in the end he's wearing a Sixers jersey on, on the video screen and the place just went crazy as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, no date yet set for the debut. Uh, he's got to get cleared in terms of his health and um doc rivers said it was said like is he gonna have to practice before you play him and doc rivers kind of chuckles at practice well he didn't quite do the iverson but he basically said <laughs> you know <laughs> as soon as he can put on a uniform he's coming in yeah i would say Talking so about practice <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> no doc rivers did not do that but you know that but we talked about this a little bit yesterday um and this is it, it's on doc now yeah, it, you know, Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey did what general managers are supposed to do, which is go get go get the best players and give yourself give yourself a chance. But now, you know, he's he's handed this team over to Doc Rivers with not a whole lot of time to put the pieces together, knowing full well what the expectation is now and the stakes having been raised. And now, all eyes turn to Doc Rivers and say, "Okay, Doc, here's the team. Make it work." Yeah, 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. By the way, Tyrese Maxey with 24 points last night, 9 for 14. Uh, and He's Doc just getting better and better. He is getting better and better, and Doc said that uh, his plan is to start Maxey and Harden at the same time, so Harden's going to take the ball up the court, which he's a better ball handler than Maxey, and boy, it just... Uh, it it really seems to me like they're in a good spot right now. I mean, you know, this is this is this is good for everybody in the lineup. This this helps everybody. So it is going to be a lot of fun. Now tonight, six thirty kickoff: Rams versus Bengals. Ray, a hundred million plus people will watch this game. Uh, it's on NBC this year. Al Michaels, Chris Collingsworth in the booth. Um, let's, uh, let's start the show, uh, focus on the quarterbacks, if we may. So, um, let's go with Joe Burrow first. Uh, well, go ahead. You, you just kind of give me your breakdown and then I, I will ask you some questions about, uh, about Burrow. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> where do you begin with this guy? Uh, he has, um, uh, he's, he's, he's sort of the marquee figure in this game, which is kind of amazing. I, I think, I mean, when Joe Casual fan thinks about the Super Bowl or when they tune in tonight, I mean, the camera's going to be on Joe Burrow constantly. Um, and that's, that's saying something for a guy that's still just really at the very beginning of his NFL career. But, you know, you're talking about a guy that, you know, won the state championship as a high school player in Ohio, w- wins the national championship as a college player at LSU, uh, on one of the on one of the best college football teams I've ever seen was that LSU team that he that he quarterbacked that year, uh, and now he's in the NFL and he's got an opportunity to win a Super Bowl <laughs> at, at this point in his career. Um, and I I don't think you know that's none of it's a fluke. I mean the guy really is that good. Um, I I really when I saw him playing college I really felt like I was watching a special player. And uh, I can't say that I expected him to have this kind of success this soon. Um, but you watch him week in and week out, and you watch the things that he's done with this team, um, the way he's taken charge of this team, and the way he's made every aspect of this team better. And I'm including the coaches when I say that. Um, you realize that he's just an extraordinary talent. Uh, and coupled with the fact that he's done this behind an offensive line that I'm going to be charitable when I say this, that is mediocre. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, they aren't even really that, but I'm going to be charitable and give them the benefit of the doubt that they're playing in the Super Bowl, and I'll go as far as mediocre. But if you if you actually watch them, um, man for man, and you break them down, they're they're just not very good. Yeah, well, he got sacked what nine times in that Titans game. Yeah, and he got sacked. You know, he got sacked 55 times over the 51 times over the course of the season. Um, but he did he did a a really rare double. Uh, and this and this I think there's a lot of there's a million statistics out there, especially as they apply to quarterbacks, but. Uh, and some of them have more merit than others, but the, it's a very rare combination that a guy leads the NFL in completion percentage and average yards per attempt. You know, there are a lot of guys that can complete. So you're saying he's not Sam Bradford? No, I'm, what I'm saying is he is not Sam Bradford. <laughs> Sam had what, like 71 completion, 71 percent completion percentage one year, each for five yards? Right. Pretty yeah. much, and that's you know, I mean, if you look in the Eagles, if you look in the Eagles' uh, all-time statistics, highest completion percentage for a season, those kinds of things. Sam Bradford's up there in all of them, but yeah. you know, the thing, he he never he never scored touchdowns. He no, never won games. Sam. Yeah. But this guy led the league in completion percentage and led the league in average yards that's per really attempt. Great. So that that's, I mean, that's that's a very very rare double. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. I think 
I think that, uh, you, you, I mean, you might have to go back. Brady might have done it one year. But uh, to, to, do it, uh, to do it right now at this stage of your career is pretty remarkable. So that's Joe Burrow. And then, you know, Matthew Stafford is Wait, a different— Wait, before, before you get to Stafford, because the, the one question I have for Burrow, and I, and I guess you probably answered it already, but it is the, this is the interesting thing that I'm curious to see, which is, is this finally the moment that's too big for him, right? He, he won the Heisman Trophy. He won the national championship. You mentioned that LSU team. Uh, he was this year NFL Comeback Player of the Year after he ripped up, his, shredded his ACL last year. Uh, and he has taken a franchise that was just dead in the water for decades to the Super Bowl. So to me, the angle, the, the, the whole, the storyline is, is this, is this another, another tier that he ascends to? Is this another great step that he climbs or is this where he finally stumbles? That's, that's the story I'm really looking for today. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's. You know, that, that's the great unanswered question, and we'll find out later on today. I will say this. Uh, if he struggles tonight and the Bengals do not win, and clearly if he struggles, they will not win, uh, it won't be because of what you just said, that the moment was too big for him. Mm-hmm. He can handle the moment. I don't know that he can handle the Rams' defense. You know, I mean, yeah. you, saw, I mean right. you saw last year, you know, we all know what Patrick Mahomes is. I mean, we've all seen how brilliant Patrick Mahomes is. And you saw what happened last year in the Super Bowl when he went into that game against that Tampa Bay defense with a with an offensive line that was missing both of its tackles and you know Patrick Mahomes was running for his life the whole game um that could very well be how this game breaks down tonight it won't be because he goes out there and freezes which is really kind of what happened if you look back at the Jared Goff Super Bowl um when the Rams when the Rams went to the Super Bowl and only got three points um I mean if you saw Jared Goff he was just terrified the entire game uh and once once he froze up which he clearly did right at the beginning of the game they had no chance well i'm not saying that that um matt uh i'm not saying that uh, joe burrow Burrow. is going to yeah i'm not saying that joe burrow is a cinch to win this game but if he doesn't win the game it won't be because he, he didn't have he didn't have the uh, the fortitude or the guts to win it. I mean, he's got plenty of that. I just yeah. don't know if he has the offensive line. Stuff to do it if Aaron Donald is the, that will allow him to do that. Your shoulders, right? Yeah, uh, boy. And it's funny because you mentioned Mahomes. The AFC is just loaded with that young those young quarterbacks. That to me is the story of the NFL over the next three, four, five years. Yeah, it's really the difference between the two conferences. I mean, yeah. the NFC has got all these veteran quarterbacks. And the AFC is just loaded with all these great young quarterbacks, and it really is it really is a very very clear distinction. But the AFC is, uh, I mean, they're poised to play some really exciting football for the next few years with these guys under center. All right, so let's look at the Rams. Um, even before last year's Super Bowl, the Rams realized that Jared Goff was not their guy. They made the trade. I forgot this. They made the trade last year before the Super Bowl. Sent Goff. Was I think two first round draft picks and something else to Detroit got Matthew Stafford, who I think you said yesterday had languished for a decade in Detroit, and now here comes his moment, Ray. Yeah, um, and he's coming into this game in a whole different in a in a whole different sort of vehicle than uh, than than Joe Burrow. And uh, I, I've I've always been a Matt Stafford guy. I saw him play at Georgia. I thought he was really really talented. I wasn't surprised at all. He was the first player picked in the draft. He should have been. I thought that he was that good. And then he winds up getting picked by Detroit. And that's, you know, that's what happens to some young quarterbacks. You know, if they're that good, they're at the top of the draft. And the teams at the top of the draft are very often teams that are hapless and helpless. And 
you know, we kind of see Trevor Lawrence maybe has found that situation in Jacksonville. Maybe Doug Peterson can change that. But certainly Matthew Stafford found it in Detroit, and there was no escaping it. For a decade, he was stuck with a team that never gave him, never gave him the team, never gave him the organization, never gave him the coaching, never gave him the direction that he had a chance to win. Finally, he gets traded to the Rams and makes all the difference in the world in that team. I mean, he's he is still, it's interesting, he is still a, a very much a gunslinger, which uh, is which comes back to bite him a lot. I mean, if you look this year, I mean, he did throw 17 interceptions. And um, it's very rare that a guy leads the league in interceptions and is quarterbacking in the Super Bowl. Those two, those two things yeah. don't usually go hand in hand, but they did in this case. Now, he, he had them in a bunch, in a stretch, kind of in the middle of the season, when, frankly, he played very poorly. Um, but at the end of the year, he, he started playing better, and he's played quite well in the postseason. And he knows what this means. I mean, this may be this may be his Joe Burrow. You look at Joe Burrow, and you feel like this guy's going to have multiple chances to win a Super Bowl. This is not going to be Joe Burrow's last rodeo. I don't believe. Could be for Matt Stafford. So, I mean, he's fully aware of what this opportunity represents. It's an opportunity for him to go out and totally rewrite his chapter in the NFL history book uh, to go there and. And, you know, he saw what Tom Brady did last year. He saw Tom Brady went to a new team and won a Super Bowl in his first year. He's trying to do that, too. Nice. All right. Uh, let me just set up the show a little bit. We'll get a phone call or two in here at the top. 215-592-9494. 215-592-9494. Well, the two subjects we opened with are probably going to dominate the show, of course. We will talk about the Super Bowl. Ray's going to give you all the X's and O's, and we've got all kinds of other little Super Bowl odds and ends to discuss. And the Sixers are the story right now following the trade uh, and where they are headed right now. You want to talk about uh, the Flyers or baseball or whatever, we'll certainly be happy to take the call as well. We're going to talk to Jeff McClain of the Inquirer. He is out at the Super Bowl. Going to get him at noon and 11. Mark Zumoff, the 28-year voice of the Philadelphia 76ers, will discuss. Uh, will call us and we'll discuss all nature of that. And by the way, just uh, one more thing before we go to the phones, Ray. Uh, I got um, outstanding, tremendous feedback yesterday on our conversation with Dick Vermeil, newest member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, that was a real highlight. It was a real highlight. First of all, being able to get him yesterday was great, and your long-standing relationship with him really made that possible. And and secondly, the the candor, the honesty um, that he spoke with, you know, just the the open emotion, and quite frankly, you getting emotional at the end of that. It was it was it was a really it was a very special 15 minutes for the show, Ray. Oh, that's that's cool. I heard a lot of people checked in with me afterwards and um and, <laughs> and said you were kind of getting you were kind of choked up there at the end, weren't you? And I said, uh, oh, you know, I, I I didn't know that it came across, but I guess that it oh, did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were a little for Klimt there. Yeah, but, but you know we uh, hey, listen, great. I I go back a long way with that guy. You know, yeah. from 1976 from when he first walked in the door as the coach of the Eagles all the way up to today and uh um I just have the utmost respect for him, and I am, I am just absolutely thrilled that he got his call to Canton because that is so so well deserved. I can't wait! I can't wait! I can't wait for that speech. That's going to be that's going to be one for the ages, no question about it. It's going to be an all timer. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. Will in New Jersey starts us off. Will, you're on with Glenn and Ray. How you doing? Hi guys, how are you? All right. Hey, I just wanted to echo what you were saying is, you know, I didn't get a chance to listen to the show yesterday live. I ended up listening to it last night around 10 o'clock, and I got, I got so choked up, and the questions that you guys asked Coach was just unbelievable. 
Yeah, he. Um, it was really nice that he found the time for us. I mean, there's so much. There's so much going on with him right now. I mean, he's out in Los Angeles now, and there's. I'm sure he's. He's got a million requests, and people are pulling on him to go this way and go that way. And you know, the fact that he carved out some time for us, um, 9 a.m. West Coast time. I'm really grateful, and you know, uh, I knew what this meant to him. I, you know, he was not a guy that campaigned for it. He wasn't a guy that uh, you know asked people to write letters for him. I mean, that's that's just not him. But yeah, he he really this was something that he really wanted, and I know it means the world to him and Carol and you know Richard and David and Nancy and all the grandchildren. I mean, there this is this is a huge huge moment, and it is so well deserved. It's you know it's nice to see a nice guy finish first. You know, it really is. I know, and I remember being a kid when they lost the Super Bowl in '81, and then in 2000 when he won that. It, it was almost part of me was like it's almost like the Eagles had won, and the mm-hmm. fact that he remembered all those guys and you know your relationship with him, Rain. You got me a little choked up yesterday, so not, you know I had to call today, and you guys did such a great job with that, and I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes of your time. Well, thank you. Thanks, Will. Uh, appreciate that. I, I do appreciate it, and I I will tell you this, Ray, and I think this sums up a lot. So, after he is named to the Hall of Fame earlier this week, um, the three teams for whom he coached, the Eagles, the Rams, and the Chiefs, all put up on social media, you know, congratulations to the coach with a picture of him and, uh, you know, so on. And uh, I I am taking this on faith because somebody told me this. I didn't look this up myself, but I I have no reason to doubt this is true. Um, When something goes up on social media, people will like it, retweet it, you know, give it a thumbs up, whatever, okay, on various social media. Mm -hmm. The number of Eagles fans, people who responded to the Eagles tweets, Instagram uh, entries, was like five times the number of people from the Rams or the Chiefs. And he won the Super Bowl with the Rams. (laughs) Yeah, he did. But the people in Philadelphia or the people who are Eagles fans are the ones who are excited about it. Yeah. Well, you know what? I guess the Rams have an excuse. They kind of left St. Louis in the interim, so maybe that plays into it. But he coached this team 40 years ago, and people still embrace him like that. It's a special relationship. It's a lifetime relationship. Yeah, he's still he's still on billboards in the city, and and always will be. And I think there, well, there are two two reasons for that. Number one was he came in here and took over. The Eagles, the people in this city love this football team. You and I have talked about the fact that Philly is really a football town, and it clearly is. Oh, sure. And But you look at what that team was in 1975, 1976. I mean, they, that, was, I mean that was Skid Row. I mean, it was, I mean, that was as bad as it gets. <laughs> and the fans, here, the fans here had almost given up hope. They really had. I mean, the team was at the bottom. They had traded away all their drafts for like the next five years. And there was a feeling that we'll, you know, we'll never get it. We're in a, we'll never get out of this hole. And Dick came in and, <laughs> in three years' time, changed the whole thing around. And in year five, had him in the Super Bowl. And and then everybody kind of watched the meltdown happen. And everybody there was there was a tremendous amount of sympathy and empathy for what he went through because everybody knew that it was the way he was working and building the team was what took that toll on him. Yeah. So when he stepped away, he stepped away, but he never left Philadelphia. I mean, he mm-hmm. stayed here, made this his home. Even though he coached the Rams, this remained his home. He coached the Chiefs, this remained his home. He's here. He's made it very clear. He never wants to live anywhere else. Uh, and the people here have just embraced him as, first of all, a great Philly guy, which he has certainly become. And secondly, the guy that just changed changed the arc of football in Philadelphia. I mean, this, this team was going absolutely nowhere. 
and Dick almost single-handedly turned it around. And from that time on, really, from the Vermeil years and pretty much up to today, the Eagles have been a pretty good franchise. And Dick Vermeil's the guy that put them on the path to that. Nicely said. 215-592-9494. We will have some Eagles talk. We'll have Super Bowl talk. Sixers, uh, Bob and Ed are hanging. They'll come up next. If you want to join them, 215-592-9494. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now on a snowy Sunday Super Bowl morning in the Delaware Valley on 94 WIP. P. Ryan is in. One timeout for Cincinnati. And going deep into the end zone and caught by Chase. Oh, my goodness, what a crab! 34-yard touchdown throw! All right, we're going to get some of that today. I hope so. That's Hey, great matchup today, Ray, in the Super Bowl. Since the offense versus Rams defense, will Jalen Ramsey be able to lock up Jamar Chase? That, to me, is one of the great storylines tonight. Yes, it is, uh, and they're certainly going to feature that. I mean, when the game and all the pregame shows are going to feature that at the start of the game, they're going to highlight that. I guarantee you there will be a camera ISOed on that matchup. Uh, all day, and they should. I mean, that's really that's really a key one. I mean, you see what Jamar Chase has done. He has been absolutely sensational. Uh, Justin Jefferson set the record last year, as all Philadelphia fans <laughs> have been often yeah, reminded, been reminded of, of that. Eh? Often reminded <laughs> of the fact that he set the record for most receiving yards uh, by a rookie, uh, and then Jamar Chase came out this year and broke it. And uh, he has not slowed down in the postseason, but. Typically, if the Rams play this the way the Rams have played most games, they will put they will put Jalen Ramsey, who was one of the best, if not the best, one-on-one defender uh, in the NFL, on Jamar Chase, on the rookie, and see if he can see if he can handle it. I mean, you look back over this year. One of the things I did when I was doing my research for this game was I looked at how Jalen Ramsey played against the top guys when he played against him this year, and he did pretty well. But Justin Jefferson held him to just three catches and twenty-five yards. Uh, he had to play against D.K. Metcalf. We've all talked about D.K. Metcalf. Why the? Why didn't the Eagles take him instead of J.J. Ortega-Whiteside? That's another story for another day. Yeah, again, we know Ray, we, you're bringing out all the old moves, I know, you? I know. I'm bringing all the skeletons out of the closet. But he held, D, he held D.K. Metcalf to three catches for 25 yards. And when he played against Devontae um, uh, Adams, uh, who's obviously a great player in Green Bay with a great quarterback, he held him to just five catches. So he's been he's been up against the best, and he's gotten the better of all of them. And now... And now Jamar, Jamar Chase gets a chance to see what he can do against him on the biggest stage of all. Uh, you mentioned the Cincinnati line, and that that's the offensive line, and that's going to be huge. So if you're, you know, if you're if you're game planning for Cincinnati, how do you try to overcome that? It's going to be very hard. I, I mean, I don't know if you, if you look at that line man for man, it's it's just you know they're just not very good. I mean, it's uh, you know Jonah Williams, who's the left tackle, anyway, allowed. 10 sacks himself this year uh the guards Jeez. inside um the guards inside are are not very good and isaiah price oh, isaiah price the right tackle kind of the same way i mean there's just there's just nothing there and you know the rams can attack everybody talks about aaron donald and he's the best defensive lineman in football by a long shot at 12 and a half sacks this year but it's not just aaron donald i mean you know, they've got vaughn miller who was who was only a super bowl mvp a yeah, couple of years good, ago good pickup uh and uh, and leonard floyd Who's the who's on the other side? So they're going to come at you not just with one great player, but they're going to come at you with two coming up the middle. But you're going to come at you with two guys who are Pro Bowl level players coming off the edges. So that's going to be that's going to be a real problem. I just don't they you they the Bengals can't block them. They 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 just can't block them. 
So they're going to have to find a way. They're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to scheme their way out of this to some degree. Joe and one of the things that they'll probably try to do, and certainly I would try to do, is is run the ball. You know, I mean, they've got Joe Mixon, who's a good running back. He regained twelve hundred yards this year, uh, and I think they're going to, they're going to have to lean on him to to give them some balance in the offense. They can't afford to fall behind and get into a pass, pass, pass mode, and they can't get they can't get one dimensional in their play calling. They have to come out and they have to run Mixon early and keep Mixon in the game to sort of keep that defense, that Rams defense, a little bit honest. They can't mm-hmm. turn this into a 45-50 pass attempt game for Joe Burrow because even as good as Joe Burrow is, I don't think he can survive a game like that. Bob and Del Rand wants to talk about Joe Burrow. Bob, what are you thinking? Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about Joe Burrow. I've, I've seen him and it's pretty obvious how great the guy is. And I, I'm just, like, just amazed how this guy – can process as, as Ryan you have said it's about processing what they see on the field and making a decision that's the key thing that's what Brady's thing is too as well I mean they got great arms and everything like that but is that something that can be taught and what is the success rate of that or is that just something inbound and I guess I'm kind of going into Jalen Hurt can that be learned or is that just something inherent that can't be taught either got it or you don't yeah, um, yeah, I, I see. I see what you're asking, Bob. It's um, it can be taught, and guys can improve, but there are guys who are um, who are almost savant like in their in their ability to see the field and process information. Brady was Brady is certainly an example of that. I mean, you look at you look at Brady, his physical ability. Um, he's not a particularly mobile guy. Um, has a, a good arm, but not a great arm. Yeah. But what's made him the greatest quarterback of all time is what's between his ears. Is he has he just has a feel for the game and an ability to process, to see things, dissect things, and process information yeah. and get the ball out of his hand quicker than anybody else. You can teach you can coach you can coach a guy to to a certain extent and make him better, but there are certain guys that just have that gift. Uh, and I, you know, and Joe Burrow has that gift. He does he just does. I mean, you and you just saw it. And he yeah. combines it and he combines it with. With tremendous toughness, I, I saw a piece yeah. on him this week from from his high school days. When um, as good as a player as he was in high school as a quarterback, he was also their nickel back on defense. When they went to five defensive backs, he came in and played safety. And they showed some footage of him coming up, and I'm telling, really sticking guys. So I mean, he's uh, he has that kind of he has that kind of toughness that it's made him without question the leader of that team. And you just look at the way the guys look at him in the huddle. There's no question they have absolute, complete, total confidence that if they can keep him in the game, they have a chance to win any game. Yeah, yeah. So generational. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, we use we always use the term um, franchise quarterback, and everybody's looking to draft a franchise quarterback. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. You know, I mean, there, there's a lot of there are a lot of Tim Couches and Achilles Smiths out there, um, but this guy, I. I never had a doubt after I saw him play at LSU. I mean, he he was it. And you look at what this franchise was. I mean, this, this is a team that won two games two years ago. And oh, yeah. I mean, they've changed. Oh, I mean, they've brought that's in how they some got better, him, right? Yeah, but they've brought in some they've brought in some better players and uh, and they've done some things that they needed to be done. But what's made the biggest difference is the quarterback. I mean, they got him now. And uh, uh, this guy, I'm telling you, this is not the last Super Bowl he's going to play in. <laughs> Ed in Westgrove is with us. Uh, Ed, what's your thoughts today? Well, first of all, congratulations to Dick Vermeil. Long overdue, in my opinion. And uh, 
you know, I, I was probably, what, 15 when he came in. And uh, I actually saw him at a University of Delaware game. He was there with Vince Papali. Vince Papali's son was playing for the University of Delaware, and it was a halftime. He was up against the wall with Vince, and he's talking, and I felt like a kid going up to him saying <laughs> hi with the butterflies in the stomach. But him and Vince could not have been nicer to talk to me and, and take the time there. And, and what struck me also was he's with Vince Papali. I mean, that coach-player relationship that he would come to a little University of Delaware game to watch Vince's son play amazes me. Yeah. It is um it, it it is a very special bond that exists between Dick and his former players. Um and it, it works both ways. I mean, he supports all of his guys all the time. I mean, yesterday I was telling the story, and this is true, I know this to be a fact, that Dick will still pick up the telephone and call guys that played for him in high school. I'm not just guys that won a Rose Bowl for him, not just guys that won a Super Bowl for him. He he picks up the phone and checks in on the guys who played for him at Hillsdale High School. Just because he's that kind of person, and that you know that builds a, a sense of loyalty and a bond, and truly a love between between a coach and a player that's very very rare. But uh, yes. but that's the way Dick is with the players, and the players feel that way for him. Yeah, two speeches. Brian Dawkins was, for, uh, but I'm, I can't wait for yeah. Dick for me to speak. So, but uh, to, to my Joe Burrow point, um, Ray, I thought I remember you saying one time, and it was a quarterback that came out of Stanford drafted by the Indianapolis Colts, and he did nothing but took a pounding over and over again. And I thought you remember you saying that it was criminal that Indianapolis never put an offensive line in front of Andrew Luck. Yeah, you're right about that. I'm hoping that's not the same for Joe Burrow. I, you know, I just, this guy, this kid is special. I'm, I'm going to be rooting for him tonight and just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, you know, it's funny, Ed. Um, I, I think about that comparison a lot. <laughs> I really do. I mean, when, when Cincinnati came in uh, to the link last year and played the Eagles, uh, and you just saw Joe Burr just getting crushed on every, on every play, uh, I mean, I was, I was cringing because I, I just had, I had visions of, oh, God, this is Andrew Luck all over again. And I, I still to this day believe that if Andrew Luck had gone with an organization that would have done more to put a decent team around him and to try to protect him, um, that he could have gone on and become one of the all-time best quarterbacks. I mean, I thought, I thought he was Elway-like. I thought he had that kind of ability to be that kind of player, but because of the way the team and the front office uh, just basically screwed up, his, his career was over before he never even got to 30. Uh, and I would hate to think the same thing could happen to Joe Burrow. And frankly, last year I was a little afraid that it would. Um, but now, I don't know, I... I the, the offensive line that has to be totally overhauled. I don't know that you can go forward with any of these guys, to be honest with you. I mean, they have to rebuild this offensive line and get an offensive line in front of them, or else they could wind up with an Andrew Luck situation, which would be a real tragedy. It really would. But, you know, you see the way they've been running this offense. Um, they're trying to build it as best they can. They're trying to mix in the run to keep the other team a little bit honest. And most of all, most of all, they've got him getting the ball out of his hands so quick. And that's going to be the whole key tonight. I mean, you're going to see him. He's not going to be standing in the he's not going to be standing in the pocket, tapping the football, tapping the football because he can't. He knows he can't. So the whole game is going to be about him getting rid of the ball in a hurry, and it kind of limits your range. You know, I mean, he can't hold it and wait for Jamar Chase to get that sixty yard separation down the field. But that's kind of where they are right now. But if they can put a better offensive line around him with some of these playmakers he's got at the receiver position, man, the Bengals are <laughs> the Bengals could be. I mean, they could be putting together an offensive juggernaut. Whoever thought Cincinnati might be a dynasty of some sort? Yeah, I know. Well, they got they got the quarterback, 
And they got the receivers, they got the quarterback, and they got the skill position guys. Now they just got to figure out how to make that offensive line work. I mean, I'm sure... I don't know what their salary cap situation is. I imagine it's pretty good, right? Burrow's on his first contract, and I don't know a whole lot of uh, Jamar Chase on his first contract. I don't know a whole lot of high-priced uh, players there. So you spend, you go out and you get a whoever the best veteran offensive lineman in the free agent market is. You steal him, and you spend your first-round pick on an offensive lineman, and then, hey, you're two-fifths there, right? Yeah, I think they should. You know, uh, it's it, really, it raises an interesting question that um, – that was that was discussed widely. Heck, you and I discussed it going into the going into this year's draft, last year's draft. Was okay. The Bengals are sitting there and they've got the fifth overall pick. What do you take? Do you take Do you take Jamar Chase, knowing that he's a great receiver, knowing that he played with Joe Burrow at LSU? I mean, knowing that they, they're going to step on the field together and have immediate chemistry. Do you do that, or do you acknowledge that? Listen, we have a terrible offensive line. And we got to start putting. We got to start rebuilding it. And do you use that pick and take Penny Sewell, the tackle from Oregon, or do you take Rashawn Slater, the tackle from Northwestern? You know, both of them blue chip offensive linemen that are guys you can kind of build around. What's your choice? You know, I mean, what? I mean, you could make a very good argument on either side of that. You know, the Chase is just—he's too good a receiver to pass up. He's too much of a playmaker, and he and Joe obviously can work together and win together. Or do you start the rebuild on the offensive line with two guys that? or can't miss offensive linemen. I guarantee you that that discussion went back and forth in, in the Cincinnati draft room. Uh, and as I said, you can make a good argument on both on either side of it. They took Chase. I'm sure they don't regret it, but I'm telling you right now, there's <laughs> they're going to be drafting offensive linemen this year for sure. Yeah, but as you said, it seems to have worked out okay. Uh, 215-592-9494. We have people on hold want to talk about Dick Vermeil, the Super Bowl, the Sixers and Ben Simmons. Don't forget, at 11 o'clock, we're going to check in with Mark Zumoff, uh, who I'm doing a uh, – and Ray, actually. We're going to be involved in a very good charity effort this coming week, and you want to hear what Zoo has to say from his perch. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. Back in the day. It's one of those well-known teams back in here. Tyrese Maxey for three. Great game uh, by Therese Maxey yesterday. Great game by the Sixers. Real anticipation. We don't know if James Harden's going to play this week. Sixers next play Tuesday against Celtics. It's going to wait till after the All Star game. But boy, it's exciting. And Ray, you know how I know that the Sixers deal was a brilliant move. Uh, how's that? Because you judge it by the critics. And if there's anything that makes me confident about the Sixers picking up Harden, it's this. From lead jack wagon, Skip Bayless. Okay. Quote, Sixers just made a huge mistake. Nets just made a steal of a deal. Hmm. If Skip doesn't like it, Ray, I think it's going to work. <laughs> well, well, Stephen A. wasn't too crazy about it either. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh Really? Yeah. That surprised me. What What was his? I, I don't mean to make you the Stephen A. reporter here, but, but, but he didn't. He he doesn't like Harden. Um, no, they they gave up too much. Oh, all right. They gave wow. up too much. Uh, well, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. Listen, I I praise, I salute Daryl Morey, and and we kind of mentioned it yesterday. He held firm. Everybody told Morey, get what you can for Ben in the soap opera. You got to do this. Just cut your losses. And Daryl Morey waited until the deadline, 
Um, I think he, he kind of sensed, look, I, I, Joel Embiid is having the year that we really need to capitalize on. I'm not going to just do it to cut my losses. I'm not going to give up Maxi. I'm not going to give up Thibel. And now, you know, they go into the stretch run and they have two real superstar players. They have two offensive killers. They have this year's MVP. They have a guy who won the MVP before, who you hope is revitalized. They have a nice supporting cast. Yeah, they need a backup center. And, yeah, they lost a shooter in Curry. But to me, man, they're, they're going to be good. The one thing I will say, and this is just between you and I, uh-huh. on the one hand, they're going to be really exciting. On the other hand, those games are going to take forever and maybe get a little dull there in the final minutes. <laughs> because, as you know, it's it's dribble, 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 dribble. Pass, get it back, dribble, dribble, get a foul. Uh, right. Yeah. James Harden is a great player who does not play. Uh, listen, winning is exciting. By his nature, he does not play exciting basketball. If you're winning, he does. Well, right. That's that's You're exactly right. That's it. Yeah. All right. Let us uh, talk to Aaron in New Jersey. You're on with Ray and Glenn. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. Um, thanks for taking the call. Not that I really want to spend so much time talking about Ben Simmons, but I am curious on your perspective whether, you know, you think he's going to be able to sort of rehabilitate his career. He's not exactly going to a media market where there's going to be less <laughs> scrutiny on him. Um, and, and, I mean, I agree with everything you said, including just now, that, you know, Maury made the right trade for the right time, capitalizing on Embiid's season. But trading someone like Simmons to a division rival that we will see for the foreseeable future, is this something that could come back to bite them? I don't think so. There is the possibility. There's always the possibility. Um, you know, projecting the future is, is iffy, but um, a few things. I don't think that Ben Simmons is going to develop into much more than he ever has been. He has had every opportunity to do it. Everybody has known over the last seasons and off seasons what he needs to do. You know, go work on your shot, not with your brother. Um, I don't think he's. I don't see why he would now develop the the gumption and the guts that he's going to want to take the potential game winning shot at the end of the game. Uh, he's certainly in a better situation where he's not going to be relied on to shoot as he was here, but they're still going to foul him toward the end of the game, and he's still going to have to make a foul shot. And that clearly is a tough thing for him to do. Now, I think Ben Simmons is the guy, and Ray, it might have been you who said this to me. If it was, I'll hand it over to you, who he likes the life. He likes the role of being a star basketball player. He wants the reputation, right? but he doesn't have the personality to really be that guy. I mean, you're talking about, you know, what Joe Burrow is and the drive. And, you know, we've, we've talked about great athletes, what, what drives them to be that. And I don't think Ben has that. And I don't think he's got the mental makeup to be that guy. No, no, I don't think so either. And he's, if he hasn't developed it yet, you know, he certainly isn't going to develop it now. I think the one thing, to, to your point, Aaron, um, I, I think that he will now be going to a situation where if he's ever going to flourish in the NBA, he has an opportunity to flourish with this particular team. Because the one thing that he doesn't want to do, the Nets have a bunch of guys that are more than willing to do, and that is shoot the ball. So all he's really going to have to do is bring the bring the ball up, and you're talking in the fourth quarter, or talking in the last couple minutes, and somebody has to hit the big shot. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want any parts of that. We know that for, for a fact. But he's got he's got Kevin Durant, he'll have Kyrie Irving, 
he'll have he'll have Seth Curry now. I mean, he'll have a lot of guys there that are more than willing to take that shot that he's never wanted to take. So now he doesn't have to take it. So that focus or that you know that lack of his game is going to be less of a factor in Brooklyn with that with that team around him than it was here in Philadelphia. So he's not going to be in a position where he's going to be asked to do the one thing he doesn't want to do, and that's shoot the ball because. Brooklyn has no shortage of shooters and not, no shortage of guys that want the ball with with you know with the clock, with time with the clock ticking down. So I don't think you know I think if he's ever going to become a star player, a guy that's part of a winning team, a guy that's actually a constructive contributing part to a winning team, he's got the chance to do that in Brooklyn because he's got the right people around him. Now it's up to him. Thanks, guys. And Glenn, I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you have a beer recommendation for this evening. Well, since we're talking to Mark Zumoff in a couple of minutes, I would recommend Zooisms, which is a beer that we put out at Conchac and Brewing Company. And here's the good thing about it. As you drink it, you will be helping a charity, Philadelphia Youth Basketball. I know it's football day, but still, it's a great beer for charity, and I would go with that. And you just allowed me to do an advertisement for myself, and I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. All right. Thank you, Aaron. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. That was well, good. He asked, Ray. I, you know, I'm gonna, what am I going to say? Hey, let's uh, just take a couple minutes here. Um, we certainly have had the opportunity to talk with and about Dick Vermeil getting into the Hall of Fame uh, as part of this class, but there are other members of the class. Uh, yesterday, we briefly spoke about Art McNally the, becoming the first referee, the first official to be named in the Hall of Fame, which is a pretty good honor. Local guy. Ray, your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I was, <clears throat> I was really, really happy for Art McNally. I mean, he's the first on-field official to be uh, inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which is really kind of overdue. I mean, in the Basketball Hall of Fame, I mean, you've, you've, got, you've got referees in the Basketball Hall of Fame. You've got a lot of umpires in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, there are referees in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But there was no on-the-field official in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which I always thought was kind of an oversight. And the first one, the most obvious one, was Art McNally because he was there forever. He was an on-field official for more than a decade, then went into the league office as the supervisor of officials and was there for half a century. Uh, and as a guy that really brought a lot of innovation and, frankly, credibility to the, uh, to the NFL office and officiating. Uh, Art was always a stand-up guy. Whenever there was a controversial call, he was more than willing to step forward and explain it. And it, what he said always made sense. And I've, I've known him for a long time, and he's a Philly guy, went to Roman Catholic, went to Temple went in the Marine Corps, served in the war, and when he came out, uh, became a teacher at Central High School, teacher and a coach at Central High School, and then began refereeing games on the side. Um, CYO basketball, semi-pro football, and worked his way up. And the thing that I remember about Art was when he announced that he was retiring as a full-time supervisor of officials, and this was 1990-91, uh, I was at the Daily News, and they asked me to go do a profile of him. So I went up to his house. And I visited him at his house, and he lived in Bucks County. And he pulled out this book, and it was like an accountant's ledger. And in that, he, he, he had entered every game that he ever refereed. Uh, starting in 1946, when he came back from the war, he, wow. he, he, he refereed. The Cleveland Rams against the... No, 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 no. Eskimos. No, this, no, no, it wasn't anywhere near that. It was, well, it was, it was the Sandlots in Philadelphia. Oh wow! <laughs> so the first game, so the first game, had he ever, he, he, and he had it, at, he, he printed every word. He was so he was so Catholic school about this. He printed every word and he put double space between every line. But the first game, and I wrote it down, was between St. Anthony's and the Claymore Athletic Club 
at American and Luzerne Streets mm. in Philadelphia. It was October 13th, 1946, and he made $5 for referee in that game. Uh, and he, took, he, he wrote down every game that he worked from that point forward. Uh, he had over 4,000 entries in that book, uh, and it spanned the whole of his career. And it took him from American and Luzerne in Philadelphia all the way up to the Super Bowl. And um, talk about a guy dedicated his life to football. He did. And so I always hope that when they talked about contributors to the game, and, you know, the Sables, I thought, belonged in. Ed and Steve Sables certainly belonged in. I thought George Young belonged in. These were people that really helped build the game. Well, clearly, from an officiating standpoint, no one helped more in terms of the development of football and building the game as from an official standpoint than Art McNally did. And now, finally, he gets his recognition. He goes in the Hall of Fame. I'm happy to say he's still with us. He's 96 years old, still living in Bucks County, uh, and I hope he's well enough to make the trip out to Canton because he's a guy that I know uh, certainly deserves deserves that big round of applause. Nice. Very nicely said. 215-592-9494. Coming up next, special treat. The voice of the Sixers for all those many years now enjoying retirement, which, by the way, I talked to him the other day. Is anything but retirement? We're going to check in with Zoo. Mark Zumoff, Ray and Glenn on 94 WIP. And I want to tell you that uh, BetQL's Giving Props Contest is back for the big game. Whether you played this free-to-play contest the first three weeks of the postseason or not, you have a brand-new shot at winning $2,000. Just go to BetQL.com slash props to sign up. BetQL has posted 10 new props around the big game. It's easy. Make your picks, and you could win two grand. Plus, as long as you sign up at least 15 minutes before kickoff, you'll be entered for the chance of taking home the $10,000 grand prize. Head over to BetQL.com. Uh, excuse me, betql.com slash props or text P-R-O-P-S to 20357 right now and make your picks. That's props to 20357. Message and data rates may apply. Can they get it in five seconds? Rattler for steal. Here come the Sixers. They are down two. Iverson. That's for three in the lead. Yes! Oh, man. Well, that was classic stuff from back in the day. Mark Zumoff, the voice of the Philadelphia 76ers for all those years, I was going to say currently enjoying retirement, but Mark is doing anything but uh, laying around uh, in the shade. Uh, he is leading an active life and is nice enough to join us now. We're going to be involved in a joint effort, actually, Ray, as well, this coming Tuesday. Zoo, how are you, my friend? Oh, Ray's going to be there now, and it's an event. Yeah. Now it's an event for sure. <laughs> Ray's going to be there. Correct. Uh, and we'll get it, we'll get to that in a few moments. But I just want to ask you um, now – it's kind of the first time you've watched the Sixers like on TV yourself, watched from the outside. Uh, of course, you were there during the building of this team and the, and the start of Joel Embiid's career. What's your take on what they've got right now, particularly after the trade they made on Thursday? I think they acquired a guy who is, I mean, I, I'm thinking maybe Jimmy Butler, aside from him, the best tag team partner to date for Joel Embiid. And like Jimmy Butler, I think Harden is a guy who you can certainly use in endgame situations to make decisions for you, to take a big shot, to make a big play, and takes a lot of the pressure off of Embiid. So I'm hopeful from that perspective that Harden is going to pay dividends. Of course, he's not the player he was when he was winning scoring titles with the Houston Rockets. And his numbers are down. I would discount that just given the state of flux that the Brooklyn Nets are currently in. But all in all, I think they got themselves a guy who is a high-quality player. 
his three-point percentage is down. You hope he picks up on that. But a guy who will rebound as a guard, he's an excellent, excellent passer. And I read a stat the other day, which is pretty remarkable. He's the all-time NBA leader, and I don't know how many he has, but the all-time NBA leader in 50-point triple-doubles. Think about that. Wow. You know, getting a triple-double and also scoring 50 in a game. Now, I still think the Sixers need a backup big. I'm not sure that Paul Reed is that guy. I would like to think so, but I'm sure that the Sixers are going to be, uh, you know, waiting to see who gets bought out, maybe somebody from Europe or, you know, maybe uh, the G League. It seems like now with everything that's been happening with rosters, there are a lot of veterans who are kind of uh, resurfacing and going to the G League hoping to get noticed. And uh, you got to replace Seth Curry in some way, whether that's somebody picking up the slack, whether that's Harden suddenly rediscovering his touch, uh, we'll see. But uh, aside from that, I'm really thrilled by the acquisition of Harden, and I can't wait for his debut, which may very well come on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, uh, Mark, what do you th- what do you think? I, I, and Glenn and I agree with you. I mean, I thought that it was um, it was a great move on the part of Maury to you know to get to get a player in here that can give. They can give Joel Embiid the opportunity to to maximize what is truly an MVP season here and make a real run at the championship, which I think they're certainly in position now to make a real run at the East at the very least. Um, but what did you think when you looked at the package that they gave up? What did you think of the price that they paid? I think we're all happy that Harden's here, but what did you think of the price they paid? It's a lot, um, and I'm not going to weigh in on Simmons because I don't think anybody can at this point. I don't know who he is or what he's about to become. And he wasn't doing anything for you, so you you figure that as a wash. Two first-round picks, I don't know if those uh, picks are going to be anything great. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in the draft, and I think Daryl Morey uh, is experienced enough to know that i got to give up picks here, but I'll figure out a way to get a first-round pick or two back later on um seth curry wasn't playing that well lately but we know as a body of work he is a very good outside shooter and a guy who was uh, creating some nice things in tandem with joel Embiid. then you have a guy like andre drummond who could probably still start for a number of teams who was given the sixers quality minutes and uh, you know, have to acknowledge the fact that Embiid, whether through uh, rest or otherwise is you know going to be missing some games and he gave the Sixers high-quality minutes. I know we were saying last year, Dwight Howard, the best backup in Bede's ever had. Maybe Drummond trumped that. And so uh, you have to give up to get. Um, I know, uh, as I think about my history with the NBA, oftentimes when you are acquiring an all-star, uh, the team that trades him rarely gets full value back. So if you think about it that way, you think about Charles Barkley going – to Phoenix and the Sixers getting a bunch of players, but you know Barkley went on to have an MVP season. You think about uh, trading Moses Malone, but the Sixers were never the same mm, since. No. Um, I, I often think that when you trade an All Star, you're hard pressed to uh, to get full value unless you get an All Star in return. Mark Zumoff is our guest. Mark is going to be hosting a, a Sixer Celtics watch party this Tuesday night at uh, Puddler's Kitchen and Tap in Bridgeport for a great charity. We'll get to that in a couple minutes. You got to watch Joel Embiid from the beginning. I mean, you got to watch him sit out during those early years. You you saw every game, you reported, you called all those games. What he is now, this player in full, 
Is this what uh, you and and apparently your dog back there uh, expected? Uh, is this? Did did you? I know it's a silly question. Did you think he was going to be this good? That's a really good question, Glenn. I'm just trying to recall what I thought. And really, as I watched Joel, I was really in the moment, hoping, of course, that he would become a really good player, but. There were so many wild cards, not the least of which was his general lack of experience relative to a lot of other guys who, you know, play AAU ball when he was doing who knows what volleyball or, or something else while growing up in Cameroon. And so uh, you, you draft a guy like that based on pure speculation. And Sam Hickey was saying to himself, OK, here's a guy who showed some promise as a freshman at Kansas. I know that he had some injury issues. And of course, we had to wait two years before he recovered from his uh problems, but um, I, I don't think anybody could have forecast the kind of dominance that Embiid is currently showing and the kind of IQ now that he has developed. He's become a, a really good passer. He seems to understand game situations. And these all things these are all things that you hope that a player can acquire as he goes, but you know, you, you're never quite sure. I always say to myself, uh, you might have that top pick of the draft, but it's still a crapshoot. There's always a fun game of, hey, let's have the 2014 draft all over again. And invariably, the picks are a lot different. So, um, no, I, I, I would be disingenuous to say that I, I did. I, I should not say that I thought Joel B was going to become the kind of player that he's become. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that anybody really did. You know, when you look at the at the East right now, Mark. I mean, it's it really it really does look like a very wide wide open kind of thing. You've got the Sixers, you've got Miami's got their. You know, Miami has been very good. You got Chicago, Cleveland. We saw last night, Milwaukee. They're all you got five or six teams all within like two or three games of each other. Um, as you look at the at the landscape of this team moving forward now, with some of the moves that have been made and teams having been having moved some players around, and now they're kind of being reconstituted for the stretch run. How do you? How would you handicap the East right now, and where do the Sixers fall in your estimation? My experience has always been that uh, veterans and the more seasoned players will typically win out. So you look at Cleveland; they've had a remarkable season, but who do they have? Who's going to take charge in the guts of the game, or you know, perform well for them in the playoffs? Uh, I, 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 frankly, I just can't see them going to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think Chicago is in a somewhat similar boat, though DeMar DeRozan is playing like an MVP, and he's a guy who's got experience, so you can't discount that. And, of course, Miami, uh, if you consider uh, the Jimmy Butler core that they currently have, they have finals experience. So uh, they're, they're going to be very, very difficult. Um, I would like to think that um, James Harden – who has gotten to a couple of conference finals. I know he has been criticized for not getting his team to the NBA finals, but uh, that's farther than the Sixers have been in many years. So uh, I think the Sixers, I think the mission is to get to the NBA finals. I think there would be a lot of happy people if they got to the conference finals, but I would like to think that with the way Embiid is playing and Harden's experience, that they would have an opportunity to get all the way to the NBA finals. And then, you know, you're going to you're going to face a really good team, whether it's Phoenix or Golden State or I don't know if Memphis. If you know, again, they have young players if they can get out of the West. But that's typically right. Been my experience is that uh, it takes several years and several years of being knocked out of the playoffs before you can finally find your way to a conference or an NBA final.
Mark Zumoff is our guest. Mark was the outstanding play-by-play voice of the Philadelphia 76ers on TV for more than a quarter of a century. Uh, Kate Scott, ably filling that role right now as rookie. And I made the mistake when I talked to you last week. I kind of said, how are you enjoying retirement? And you're doing any, you are anything but retired. For people who don't know Mark, what are you up to these days? I am teaching at Temple. I'm also the associate director of the Claire Smith Center for Sports Media, and that is meant to uh, raise the profile of not only um, our place, Temple's place in sports media, but also emphasizing diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and also being a thought leader in the industry. And I'm also teaching a play-by-play course, which I'm getting ready for. That'll be tomorrow night. And I'm also doing some work on behalf of Maccabi USA, which is, uh, in essence, um, an opportunity for Jews from around the world to gather every four years in Israel and compete in Olympic-style events. It's billed as the second largest sporting event in the world next to the Olympics. It's uh, over 10,000 athletes from 80 different countries who, who come in around the world. And what I'm doing is I'm taking a group of young, aspiring sports media professionals over to cover the games, whether we're streaming live events or doing features on people or, or, or print reporting or social media. And I'm really excited for that. And that's, that's taken up a lot of my time. And then thank to you, Glenn, uh, and Contra and Brewing, we had the idea for uh, a beer for charity. And all I did was go to you and say, I like IPA. <laughs> and you guys took the ball and ran, you know, 150 yards with it. You came up with great branding, a great label, and above all, a great recipe. It's an awesome brew, and it drinks easy. And uh, you and I were sipping it at 11 o'clock in the morning the other day. And um, I, we were. I'm sorry I had to leave. That's the only thing I could say. <laughs> That's, <all right. laughs> That's okay. Well, let, let's talk about that. Because, yeah, you, you came to me, and you came to us, Conchock and Brewing, and you, and you said, I want to work with Philadelphia Youth Basketball. And so let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about that organization and your commitment to them. So it pretty much is what uh, it says in the title, Philadelphia Youth Basketball. So the organization takes basketball and it leverages the game in order to uh, attract young people. Um, these, are the, these are young kids who, for one reason or another, are uh, without proper education. They're out without proper health care. Uh, their, their lives are, in many ways, unfulfilled. Not like the kind of lives that, that, well, I had grown up in Northeast Philly. I wasn't a rich kid, but I, I had at least a, a stable family. I had food on the table. Uh, I, I was given a philosophy about education. And, and these are kids who desperately need that. And that's what this organization provides. Uh, one of the centerpieces of the organization is they are building something called the Allen Horowitz Six Man Center. It's located in Nicetown. They've taken over an old casino furniture factory, and it's a $20-some million project. They're going to totally revamp it. At the end, it's going to have gyms. It's going to have wellness centers. It's going to provide proper nutrition. It's going to provide uh, financial education. And above all, a safe haven for kids to come and feel community, to feel support. And in many places or in many instances, these are kids of color, and there will be uh, mentors of color, people who can identify with them in their circumstances, who can help them and hopefully uh, eventually, thanks to PYB, lead productive lives. 
Okay, and so um, with your great dedication to that, as as you said, you came you came to me, you came to us at the brewery and said, "Can we do a beer for charity?" And it took us about a second and a half to decide collaborating with Mark Zumoff was a good idea. Uh, we took your yes IPA, I'm with you idea, and we made a very crushable 5.2 percent. And Ray, the name of it is. And it is zooisms. Zooisms. And the can has, I think, a stunningly accurate caricature of Mark Zumoff, as well as his sayings, his zooisms, all around the can. So as you enjoy your 16 ounces, you can read, oh, look at that, timely deuce, spinning garbage into gold. Yes, all of those great things. Uh, and Tuesday night, um, you are going to be hosting a Sixers-Celtics viewing party, uh, which is uh, I'm kind of calling Hoist a Brew with Zoo. At our place, uh, Puddler's Kitchen and Tap, 3 DeKalb Street in Bridgeport, 6.30 to 9.30. Uh, Ray is going to be there, as well as Mike Sealski signing and selling copies of their great books. Uh, Fran Dunphy, I think I told you this, is going to come by and join us, Mark. That's awesome. Uh, that's yeah. a great guest list right there. And um, I have some invitations out as well, so I don't want to commit for people until I hear from them. But I already think it's an awesome lineup. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, 20% of food and drink sales going yep. directly to PYB, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, I'll be there to take pictures and schmooze and drink and watch the Sixers take on the hated Celtics. And um, again, from 630 to 930, it's, uh, it's going to be an awesome, awesome experience. I'm really excited for it. And I want to thank you and, and Conchock and Brewer brewery for stepping up and doing all this you guys have been amazing uh, it's it's a great partnership and we have uh, a handful of auction items including a night drinking beers with you and i which uh, i think could be fun and go out to lunch how's this phil martelli reached call phil martelli the other day and said listen i spoke to fran dunphy fran says he'll go to lunch with some people would you join him and phil says yes thank you for calling me i appreciate being invited so when phil comes back from michigan in the summer Lunch with Phil Martelli and um, Fran Dunphy. That's a pretty good prize. Um, yeah, and I think all you need to know about those two guys uh, and talking about your conversation with, with Phil, the fact that he's thanking you for giving him yeah, the opportunity I to know. give up his time is uh, just makes him a mensch. Yeah, people are good people, <laughs> and you're at the top of the list. And so Tuesday night, uh, we'll see you there along with Ray. And, and Mark, it's a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, – We'll cheer on the Celtics and drink an IPA Tuesday night. Oh, cheer on who? Oh, God, what did I just say? Cheer on the Sixers <laughs> versus the Celtics. Correct, Oof. yeah. God almighty, never, uh, never, never. I just have one question. Yeah. Uh, Ray, who's your Super Bowl pick? I'm taking the Rams. Got it. Taking the Rams. I just think their defense is too good. Okay, well, well there you go. might have to take that to the bank. Mm. I wouldn't if I were you. <laughs> take it under advisement, if anything. Mark, thank, thank you a ton. Thank we'll you see you Tuesday night. Appreciate you. Take care. All right, thank Thanks, you very Mark. much. Did I say cheer on the Celtics? What yes, the you did. I just was trying. You know what it was? In my mind, I was thinking, who are they playing the Celtics? I would never. Ray, you know that. I would never do that. Yeah, that's uh, play back the tape. That's what you said. We'll be there. Yeah, we'll, no, let's we'll, erase we'll, that. We'll cheer Moshe, on the Celtics. Moshe, uh, do me a favor. Get that out of there. <laughs> that, that never happened. I, I, I don't know about that. I hate the Celtics. Uh, anyway, that is going to be a lot of fun. And, Ray, I, I appreciate that you are going to be part of it. Guys like you and, and Mike Sealski and Phil Martelli and Fran Dunphy and just people who, who step up and say, sure, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Oh, sure, absolutely. I want to help. And, you know, that 
terrific cause. I mean, the you know the last time was to, you know to raise money for the for the for your old friend who was in a bicycle accident, and you know and now you know Mark's cause of uh, of trying to use basketball to help to to reach out to kids in the city. I mean, who doesn't want to get behind programs like that? Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Anyway, Tuesday night, 6.30 to 9.30, Puddler's Kitchen is half three to Calp Street, Bridgeport. Right across the bridge, go home with some Kansas zooisms. And yes, to raise money for a great cause. 215-592-9494. We've uh, pretty much cleared out the line, so if you call now, we will get you in the next segment. Ray is going to break down, uh, we're going to do Rams offense versus Cincy defense, right? Yep. We'll do that as well. If you want to talk about the Sixers, you want to talk about football, whatever's on your mind. At noon, we're going to check in with Jeff McClain. Of the Philadelphia Inquirer, 215-592-9494. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. Play clock down to one. They get the snap off. Fake to Wood. Stafford throws. It is caught. It is a touchdown. Cooper Cup tight roping the sideline. Well, that was all season. I mean, that's that's that was pretty much the Rams in a nutshell, and that is what they bring into the Super Bowl today, Ray. So let's break down the Rams offense versus the Cincy defense. By the way, there is a Good debate as to whether a wide receiver can be the MVP, which as far as I know, Don Hudson was the last one back in 1910. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember in my mind a wide receiver being the MVP of the, of the league. Uh, I'm catching you off guard on that, but I, I don't. Um, maybe it's happened. Um, I mean, Jerry, Ri- be- Jerry Rice may have. Okay, I mean, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Rice had that one year he scored 22 touchdowns. Yeah, he, he would deserve it. Cooper Cup? Um, no, I think it's going to go to a quarterback as it all usually does. But, I mean, if you look at, if you look at what Cooper Cup did uh, this year, I mean, he, uh, he won the receiving triple crown, which is pretty rare. I mean, to lead the league in, rece- in receptions, in yards, and in touchdowns. Uh, he led in all three categories. Very rare. You don't often see that. Uh, but he did it this year and put up numbers that were just, you know, flat-out ridiculous. And he's continued on in the postseason. The funny thing was, you know, a lot of people saw the numbers he put up in the regular season, 145. 100, listen, Les Glenn, 145 catches, 1,947 yards, and 16 touchdowns. And a lot of the thinking was, well, that was the regular season. When they get into the playoffs and teams start, uh, they're going to they're gonna put the defense, they're going to stack the defense to his side, and he's not going to be able to keep it up. Oh, really? In the, in the playoffs so far, 25 catches, 386 yards, and four touchdowns. So the simple fact of the matter is nobody, nobody has stopped this guy. In fact, nobody's even really been able to slow him down. And in just the first year of working together, uh, he and Matt Stafford have developed an, inc- an incredible level of trust and, uh, and timing that's made it very, very hard for teams to stop them. And when teams have tried to stop them and when they've tried to overload, which you kind of have to do, um, you know, what you've seen with Odell Beckham Jr., the addition of Odell Beckham Jr. on the other side, if you give them one-on-one coverage, um, he's really come on. I mean, he has really come on. And the more he has worked into that offense and the more he's worked with Matt Stafford, uh, the better the better they've become. And in the postseason, I saw a really interesting stat this week that in the regular season, uh, in terms of targets to receptions uh, with Odell Beckham Jr., when he joined the team kind of at midseason, uh, in, in that phase of it, 56% of balls thrown his way turned into receptions. In the postseason, now that they've had more time to work together, that figure has jumped up to 83% of targets turned into completion. So what that tells you is that he's getting more opportunities because defenses are spending more time on Cooper Cup. And the more he's worked with Matthew Stafford, the better their timing is. Don't be surprised. 
don't be surprised if Odell Beckham Jr. has a really big game tonight. Interesting. I like that. It's a nice little pick, Ray. Uh, Mike in Maple Shade joins us. Mike, you're on with Ray and Glenn. Hey, guys. How are you? Very well. Um, I'm sure hoping that uh, James Harden rings that bell on Tuesday night. I think they were saving it. They probably could have done that last night, but uh, that's just going to be totally awesome for him, for him to start out in a game with the Celtics uh, to do, you know, for that. Uh, so that's what I'm, that's A, what I'm hoping for. I think that um, sounds phenomenal. That's yes. a great thought. <laughs> I don't really have a question. I just have a comment. And I'm going to hang up and listen to you guys. Um, I didn't really think the um, Sixers were going to be able to pull off the trade. I kind of felt as though that maybe they'd have to scrap around a free agency and get hard in that way. Um, but when it came down, uh, here's what I envisioned. Um, the four teams that Philadelphia has – um, you know, the last two minutes of a football game, do we have people with the killer instinct to win the game or come from behind to win the game or solidify a lead? Uh, the Flyers, last couple minutes, do they have the people that can actually hold that lead? The Phillies, you know, do they have... Do they have the bullpen? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's but, the easiest question. Yeah. But I can tell you, the talent is one thing. The will to win is something else. I saw something in Embiid last night. I think... He just knows that it's his time. He's raising his game in expectation of what's ahead of him. And I'm sure hope, hoping James Harden comes with that. Uh, he's going to come with the talent, but that will to win, that push. Well, here's what I envision. the two the, In the last two minutes of the game, the game between the give and go between Embiid and Harden. But guess what? If they fall back and they try to cover and maybe double-team both of them, kick it out to Maxi or Tobias and have him hit it from there. So... A lot of good things on the horizon. Uh, I'm just hoping that it comes to fruition because I think uh, this could really, really, really be a good thing. You know, you mentioned some, and thanks for the call, Ray, that we haven't discussed at all, uh, which is I think this could really help Tobias Harris Mm -hmm. because it moves him down a notch in terms of his responsibility, right? He doesn't have to be the alternative alternative to Embiid. He's the third guy now. Yeah, he becomes the third option. And I think he's much more suited for that. Yeah, I agree. I think he's one of those guys that's better in that role. Uh, and uh, I was thinking of very, much, very much the same thing. Because he's certainly a skilled player. Uh, and I, I think in this offense, it's going to, again, a lot of this is going to come back to Doc Rivers and how he's, going to, how he's going to draw up this offense and how he's going to space the floor and who's going to handle the ball and all of those kinds of things. I mean, Doc really has to work, he has to work that out. I mean, he's got the players here. I mean, he really does have the players here to win the East, certainly. Well, you're mentioning this every 20 minutes or so. You're, you're, if Doc Rivers is listening to today, he's thinking, like, what is, what is Ray putting his target on? I, I don't mean to, but I don't, know, I don't know any other way to look at this. I mean, you know, Morey has done his job. I mean, he's made this trade that um, I, I wasn't sure that he could pull off. I, I, you remember there, there, there was a lot of talk about maybe it would have to turn into an off-season sign-in trade or maybe yep. it was going to have to be a trade that was going to involve three teams and a yeah. lot of and a lot of moving parts sure. and the fact that he was a, I, it helped that the Brooklyn team just basically fell apart and Harden forced his way out i mean the timing of it worked out to his advantage that happened right at the deadline but still i mean he got the he got the player he wanted now he has the team that he wanted and now it's really up to doc to make it work and you don't have a whole lot of time to put all these pieces together you've got outstanding players, and you've got guys that have played in big games before, but never together. And that doesn't happen overnight. Regardless of how good the talent is, they have to learn how to share the ball and uh, you know, and play defense and, and make the most out and maximize the talent that they have on hand. And 
you know, ultimately, I mean, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to put the finger squarely on Doc Rivers, but the I get, he's the guy that's going to have to make this thing work. He's the guy that's going to have to push the right buttons here. Yeah, he's the guy if they fall apart, who's not back next year. Yes, because the others are all going to be back. Mike in Marlton checks in. Let's talk Super Bowl and the Sixers. Go ahead, Mike. Whatever order you want. Um, I'm going to flip the script. Uh, I'm going to start with the Sixers first. Uh, I didn't really plan on saying this. But Ben Simmons, you are a sorry excuse for a man. Uh, I really hope that your career doesn't amount to anything. On uh, behalf of everyone that suffers with mental health, you did a great disservice uh, with the way you handled things and the fact that people even like to think that you have anything to do with mental uh, health just makes me sick to my stomach. Uh, and that's that. Rich Paul. Well, hold on, because I, I do want to address that, because I think it's an important point. Um, of Ben Simmons' sins, and there are many, the way he came up with the mental health excuse, only after he learned that he may not get, he wouldn't get paid, and this would give him a loophole to try to get paid in the CBA. And I agree with your point, is the most damaging, because... Everybody who has legitimate mental health issues now has just been kind of mocked by Ben Simmons. And, but, Mike, I, I think it's, it's a fair point. My kicker to add on to that is that uh, after the, the trade, it was, I was watching ESPN, and they're saying, oh, but he took all these fines. It is about mental health. Let me tell you this. When I was suffering and I was at my worst, it was debilitating. I couldn't go to, the, like, the bathroom. I couldn't shower. It was all this stuff. For him to even put his foot in that pond – it's disgusting. Uh, I, I just really think it's something that people will try and talk about, and they don't have the depth or knowledge. So they'll, they'll put his name into the conversation thinking maybe it's a possibility, but from someone who suffers from it, it, it it's absolute garbage. Uh, and I wanted to say the other Sixers point, uh, I really want to get NS Freedom in the buyout market. He would be so complimentary to Embiid. He, we definitely need another big. I was at the uh, OKC game. Embiid had no help on the rebound. He had 19 rebounds. Yeah, I know. And He's he alone. was just exhausted. Um, and then when it comes to the Super Bowl, um, I just wanted to say that I think better offense is going to be better defense. And I say that uh, like doing a 180 because I always thought better defense was better. Uh, but what it comes down to is I think Joe Burrows is going to play out of his mind and that he's really going to flourish with Jamar Chase and that offense is very explosive. Uh, and hey. while the defense I, I got to run, but your call was a great one. I appreciate it. And I'm, I mean, you gave your prediction. Zumoff got the prediction out of you right before I wanted you to do it, but whatever. He asked, you answered. Right. Um, the old axiom that uh, defense, good defense beats good offense. Just go back to Super Bowl 52. Yep. Tom Brady threw through what, 940 yards? 505. Yeah, exactly. And then look, <laughs> <laughs> and then who won that game? Uh, I think the Philadelphia Eagles won that game. 41-33. to 33. I still yep. see those bumper stickers all the time. I saw one just the other day. Yeah, I have one. Uh, I, I saw somebody post this. I, I would give credit, but I don't remember, who, who just posted recently. I think it was the anniversary, right? February 4th, said, I wonder how many people in the Philadelphia area use 4133 as their PIN number. Oh, that's good. Yeah, right? Yeah, I do not. In case anybody's wondering, but but I bet you a lot of people do. Easy to remember. I'm sure they do. I'm uh, sure they do. Mike in Arizona wants to talk about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What are you thinking, Mike? 
Hey, uh, first, I hadn't had a chance to talk to two of you this year. I just want to thank you both for bringing it every week through snowstorms, uh, not just through the sh- uh, for your show, but uh, what you do for the community with your fundraisers. And, Glenn, I know you've been dealing with back issues, and it's very admirable. So I, I appreciate, appreciate all. that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my, my question on the Hall of Fame, I, I, I really appreciated the interview with Dick Vermeil yesterday. Uh, I know he's has no problem expressing himself, but, Ray, you seem to take it to another level when you talk to him, which is always appreciated. Uh, my, my question is, I always thought Bill Berge, um, on that, who was with Nick Vermeil from day one, and his last game was that Super Bowl, right. you know, the apex of Dick Vermeil in Philadelphia. I always thought he was um, isn't getting enough love as far as Hall of Fame attention. Um, I remember as a kid, he was seemed to be the, the best linebacker in the league, even on that, that horrible team through the year. So I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts and see if you thought that there was any chance he may get some attention. Yeah, I think he should. Uh, I've said that before. Um, I think he's one of those guys. That there, there, are several, there are several former Eagles that I think have been really overlooked uh, in the Hall of Fame voting. Uh, I think Bill is one. I think Eric Allen is one. Um, I think Seth Joyner is one. Um, I think Maxie Bond from the team of the 60s probably belongs in. If you look at the number of Pro Bowls, I mean, my God, he went to the Pro Bowl practically every year that he played. Uh, and if you want to go all the way back to the 40s, I think Al Wistert, who was the captain of the two, two-time world champion team, um, they've inducted guys from that team into the Hall of Fame, Van Buren, Pijos, Benarek. Uh, but I think Wistert belongs in there. But sadly, those guys have been passed over. And I hope, you know, we've seen now a little bit of a resurgence you know, Brian Dawkins gets in. You know, Harold Carmichael gets in. Now Dick Vermeil gets in. Um, you know, maybe we're maybe we're moving into a maybe we're moving into a stretch where some of the Eagles will start getting their call. And I I definitely think that those guys belong. And I think Bill certainly belongs. I've I've said this before, and I, I and I think it bears repeating that whenever when I was a Hall of Fame voter, I I used to look at guys who were in the Hall of Fame uh, as a standard. Okay, if this guy's in, should this guy be in? Uh, and to me, it's a very easy call. Harry Carson, who was the inside linebacker, and a very, very good player for the New York Giants in the, in the same years that Bill Berge played. They were playing in the NFC East at the same time. They were contemporaries, and I saw a lot of Harry Carson, and Harry Carson was a very, very good player. But if Harry Carson's in the Hall of Fame, and I have no problem with him being there, if Harry Carson's in the Hall of Fame, then Bill Berge should be too because between, I saw them both play, and there's no doubt in my mind that Bill Berge was better. I mean, Harry Carson was really good, but Bill Berge was better. And if Harry Carson's in Canton, then Bill should be there as well. So, listen, last year Harold Carmichael got in, and we were delighted. And it it happened after, you know, he he had kind of disappeared from visibility and then was resurrected and deservedly got in. Uh, Same thing with Dick Vermeil this year. So, and you mentioned a lot of names, and I I can't argue any of them. To me, it it starts with Eric Allen. He was one of the greatest players I saw wearing Eagles uniform since I moved to town in 1987. I, I just don't get the lack of traction with him. But how does somebody get back in? How does Harold Carmichael back, get back into the conversation and then get in after all those years? Well, if you remember last year, there was there was a push to expand and, and do more seniors, guys. Um, I forget what they called the commemorative class or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and there were, there were a whole bunch of guys that had always kind of been on the cusp. They had kind of been just on the fringes of the discussion. 
And uh, they just decided that last year we were going to try and have a dual induction of the modern era and the past era. Uh, and it opened the door a little wider for some of those guys. And that gave Harold his opportunity. And, you know, some people, uh, some people locally got behind the effort. You know, uh, our good friend Jim Solano got behind it in a big way. Sal Palantonio got behind it in a big way. Yeah. Carl Peterson yeah. got behind it in a big yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people of influence. And, you know, and they, you know, and they asked me, you know, would, would I get involved? And I said, absolutely, sure, because I think Harold, there's no question Harold belonged in. So we all kind of mobilized and got, you know, got a support and s- sent our letters and made some phone calls. And next thing you know, you know, Harold Carmichael, all of a sudden he resurfaces after all of these years and gets into Canton as, as it should have be. So, you know, maybe that's kind of what we need here. I mean, that's, you know, th- I think the thing that hurt with Dick Vermeil for a long time, and I argued against this all the time was people said, well, look at his career record, you know, his career record in terms of wins and losses just, is just barely over 500. Uh, and people say that's not, yeah, well, that's not hall of fame standard. And I, yeah. and I argued strenuously, but look at what he inherited. Yeah. You take over bad teams. It takes a year or two to build it. Sure. I mean, you look at what he inherited in Philadelphia, which was a, which was a disastrous situation. I mean, people thought it was hopeless. I mean, not only do you have a bad team, but you have a bad team with no draft picks and no future. And he turned that team around and took, took them to the, took them to the playoffs four straight years and took them to a Super Bowl. Then he goes to the He sits out for 14 years and then comes back and takes over a Rams team that had lost more games over the previous decade than any team in football. He took over the, t- the Rams when the Rams were the worst team in football. Yep. And in three years, he's, w- he's not in, only in the Super Bowl, but he's winning the Super Bowl. So all of those years it took him to build those teams up to where they were competitive, you know, those, yeah, those count on his record. And so his one-loss record overall is not going to be that great. But look at his record from the time when he basically, what you would say, had his team in place. Yeah. and move forward from that, and his winning percentage goes up to about 80%. So, yeah, I mean, so. you just you just have to view all of this stuff in context. Finally, we were able to get people to be open their eyes to that, and then once they did, then it became a very easy matter of putting Dick in the Hall of Fame. 215-592-9494. I hope there is somebody out there who's, you know, on the board, has the influence, who kind of looks at Eric Allen's career and says, you know what, let's get this going. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. Coming up, we talk about... <laughs> The worst news Ray Dittinger sports fan received all week. And I love it. Ray and Glenn on 94 WIP. 215-592-9494. Ray Dittinger, Glenn Mack. Now, Ray, the snow is falling in Havertown right now. Yeah, it's uh, falling here at uh, Center City, too. I'm looking uh, looking across to what used to be the old post office. And uh, uh, lots of snowflakes between, between here and there. Picking up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Ray, on a February day when the snow is coming down, you know where my thought turns? Uh, let me guess. Baseball spring training. Exactly correct. Well, uh, I don't think there's going to be spring training, but that's okay. You can I think don't about know that. Either. No, I think you're right. I just, yeah, you know, you get the reports every day. Like, well, they submitted a new uh, proposal, which was rejected in five minutes, and nobody's moving anywhere. And the sport has so many problems that they are not addressing because. They can't even sit in the same room for more than a minute and a half. But there is one change that has been agreed on. And, Ray, I know you're resigned. When when, when baseball agreed to uh, embrace the designated hitter, I know that you kind of shrugged and you resigned to it. Mm-hmm. But I want, I want to try to turn you around so that you appreciate it and embrace it. All right? Uh, okay. So here's the thing. 
I know that in your mind, you grew up and you've spent your whole life watching pitchers hit, and you remember when you were a little kid, whatever, Robin Roberts probably hit 260, and Steve Carlton could occasionally rake one, and I don't know, Robert Person once hit two home runs in a game and all of that, right? Yeah, Warren Spahn was an outstanding hitter. Right, Warren Spahn. Yes, indeed. By the way, Warren Spahn's birthday, Ray? Uh, I have no idea. April 23rd. Come on now. You oh, yeah? That. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but here's the thing. The decline of pitchers being able to hit has been steady and has been disgraceful. And last year, Major League pitchers batted 109 with an OPS, OPS, which is combines on-base percentage and slugging percentage, of 271. Mm-hmm. They struck out 78% of the time. Um, they were less than 50-50 on getting down sacrifice bunts. They just can't do it. It's not something that will ever come back because, I mean, as you know, from what? From college, from high school, whatever. If you're a kid who can pitches, you stop hitting. And you don't do it, and you don't do it in college, and you don't do it in the minors, and you pretty much don't do it anywhere, so that asking these guys, elite athletes though they may be, to suddenly step into a batter's box against, by the way, pitchers are now throwing harder than ever. Last year, average fastball velocity was over 92 miles an hour. So they're they're having no training since they were in Little League and being expected to in any way hit a fastball is just an impossibility. And so on that basis, Ray, I'm I'm hoping that you appreciate that what you have now is actually something that will bring more strategy to the game, that will enhance the game, that will take out one guy who's completely inept every nine hitters and add somebody who maybe can hit with power, maybe can get on base and steal, although they don't do that anymore either, but theoretically. Maybe he can sacrifice bunt. Maybe he can, you know, hit and run. Maybe he's a line drive hitter. You get somebody who has talent replacing somebody who doesn't, and therefore this is good. Ray, give me an amen. Well, no. I mean, we were, for one thing, you're talking about a couple of things that, that, that they don't do anymore. They don't hit and run anymore. They don't steal bases anymore. They don't bunt anymore. I mean, that's those things are... Then, then those things have left baseball. And well, they try to bunt with pitchers. They're, going, they're yeah. going forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he can hit. He can do. He can. He has talent. He's not an embarrassment to the lineup. He can do something. Yeah, but there's there is no strategy with a designated hitter. I see. I I don't know about that. He's just he's just a. There's no strategy with a pitcher. Here's here's what I think you have when a pitcher comes to the plate. Okay, maybe he's going to try to sacrifice bunt. Again, they they were unable to do it 50% of the time, and maybe the manager makes a substitution. And to me, that ain't the pinnacle of the sport. I'd rather have a guy who get up there who can do something, is legitimate in the batter's box. Yeah. All right. That's it. I, I tried. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I know that in this town I'm probably in the, in the minority. It's it's funny. Oh no, um, I think no. I, I on the contrary, I think I think most people feel the way you feel. I think in I Philadelphia. Think I, I, no, I, yes, yes. I think I I think I am in the distinct minority. 
Mm, I think I think by the responses I got on social media. But oh okay. no, oh no. But, well, for one thing, I think most people think the way you think that uh, you know it's t- it's time to turn the page. That was that was that was baseball as it used to be. This is baseball as it is right now. Uh, right. And, and people are going towards the DH. People want more offense. Uh, and the other part of it is, especially in this town, people look at how the, how this affects the Phillies, and the Phillies are a team that could definitely profit by it. All right, you know, well, that's short term because and of, I, because and of you mentioned roster, this yesterday. The roster so. you have, I mean, it, it makes it makes perfect sense for the Phillies to have a DH because that way, either Hoskins or Bo- or Brome can you, you get them off the field and just you know let them take four at bats a game. You don't have to give them a glove and ask them to field their position, which they can't do. Yeah, well. I'm looking more in terms of the grand scheme of the game, but do I, do, I agree with you that short term, actually, that will that will give them some benefit and it will impact a lot of guys and a lot of teams and, and what you're going to do. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in my mind, the American League added the DH, what was it, 72? Do you remember the exact year? Oh, it's, it's ages ago. Yeah, right? And you never hear people in the American League say they should bring back pitchers batting. I don't think anybody's ever missed it once it's gone away. And I think this is going to be the same thing. Um, again, there's just, you know, Bartolo Colon hit a, a home run 10 years ago, and people remember that. And, you know, in the in the 08 World Series, um, uh, what's his name? Who was the fat pitcher they had in the playoffs? Uh, the fifth starter. Oh, Joe Blanton. Blanton, thank you. Joe Blanton connected with one mm-hmm. uh and that happens like once every 15 years they still have the uh they still have the picture up in the concourse at uh, yeah. citizens yeah. bank park i right we, i walk past it every time i'm trying to get to our broadcast location right so you know once every 15 years or so that happens but not enough and i'm i'm happy about it and i guess the good news on this ray is over the years you and i have had this debate countless times and i guess this is the last time we'll have this debate uh probably so Probably so. I mean, I, I just it just bothers me the way baseball has just surrendered to it and just shrugged their shoulders. Ah, they can't do it. They can't hit. They can't bunt. They can't. They just can't. Uh, what only are we going to ask him to do it? I mean, you know, why don't you why don't you take these guys and teach them how to do it? Why well, because you, you have to guys? start at an earlier level. You, I mean, you got to you got to you, you got to colleges you, do. You got to take it out of college if you're going to do it. You got to take it out of the minor leagues. Got to take it. You mean you out can't bunt? You mean you get you can't get you can't teach a guy how to bunt? Yeah, that they could do. They could teach men a bond. Of course you can. So they'll hit 109, and then they'll connect on 60% of the sacrifices as opposed to 45. All yeah. right. I just, I just, you know, I, baseball was a, was, was a wonderful game once upon a time. And there were these, these strategic elements of the game, and seeing guys who actually were truly skilled and could do different things, to me was one of the beauties of the game. If you, had a, if you had a pitcher that could hit, if you had a pitcher who could move a runner, if you had a pitcher who could run, God forbid, um, if you had a, if you had a guy who was a functioning athlete in the number nine spot, then you had an advantage. Um, and it wasn't unheard of. I mean, there were those guys, those people did exist and the game was better for it. Uh, but among the many other things that have gone away, like asking, having infielders that can turn plays and having people run the bases and have guys move runners ahead and all the other parts that really made baseball a wonderful game to watch, a truly strategic game are, are going away now. And now it's become a game of walk, strike out, or hit a home run, and that's why the game's terrible now. And to me, uh, to me, the the designated hitter was the first step down that slippery slope that got us to where we are today. Well, the one thing I'll say in consolation is we're probably not going to have to watch that horrible game anytime soon. No, probably not. So there you go. All right, last time we'll have that debate. 
215-592-9494. Jeff McLean of the Philadelphia Inquirer is going to join us next. A fascinating story today about how the Matthew Stafford trade maybe could be a blueprint for the Eagles offseason. We'll talk to him about that, about the birds, about the Super Bowl coming up. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now on 94 WIP. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. It is noon in the Delaware Valley. We are six and a half hours away from kickoff of the Super Bowl and one guy who will be there. Jeff McLean of the Philadelphia Inquirer joins us today from uh, sunny Inglewood, California, where it's probably about 50 degrees warmer than it is here today, so enjoy. How are you, Jeff? Hey, Glenn. Hey, hey Ray. How you guys doing? I'm hey, we're doing, we're, we're how are you doing, doing, Jeff? Bro. We're doing great. Uh, you had a really interesting story in today's paper uh, suggesting that the Matthew Stafford trade, uh, where the Rams brought him in from Detroit, could be a blueprint for the Eagles this offseason. Um, so... Make the argument. Um, what what are we going to see today that might be a lesson for the Eagles? Well, I mean, I, I want to preface that with that both teams obviously are in different cir- circumstances. I mean, the Rams obviously have a much better roster and are much closer to, you know, they were much closer to getting back to the Super Bowl than the Eagles are. Um, but I just wanted to kind of use it as, an, as a pathway into looking at trades historically and and the success and failures of them and and if this is something that the Eagles would entertain because I mean there have been teams in their in their situation that have been willing to to make that that gamble on a veteran quarterback and and we know that there are a few out there that could be on the market um there may not be uh it sounds like for one Aaron I don't think Aaron Rodgers would have been on their on their radar but Aaron Rodgers it sounds like he's almost 100% returning to the Packers uh, but Russell Wilson is certainly someone I think that that could be uh, wrangled free from Seattle, and we all know about Deshaun Watson. He doesn't want to be in Houston. Of course, that's a very thorny situation because you have to wait for all his legal his legal problems to clear themselves up. Um, and then there's guys like Derek Carr and Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I don't know if they're necessarily upgrades over Jalen Hurts in terms of the long term, um, but if you're looking at Wilson and Watson, those are two guys I. I I think the Eagles will, will have keyed themselves on uh, and will um, if there's an opportunity to get them. Because, look, I think there's still questions about Jalen Hurts, and, and I think every, everyone can can agree with me there. Um, he did improve last year. Uh, he's young. His contract, his rookie contract, allows the Eagles to do, um, to address a lot of the holes that they have on the roster. They have three first-round draft picks to do so, um, but they also have three first-round draft picks to, to get a quarterback of that caliber. And I'm not saying they're going to, they need to use all three of them, uh, and I'm sure they don't want to. You can use future picks, et cetera. But if you have an opportunity to get a Russell Wilson here, you instantly upgrade the roster and the position, and you give yourself a legitimate chance to be in contention for a Super Bowl. Um, and I think the same could be said of Deshaun Watson, who is probably more appealing because he's uh, eight years younger, um, and you don't have to worry about, obviously, the longevity and the wear and tear. Um, now, these are all kind of speculative things. I get that. Um, but I think it's certainly something that Howie Roseman and Jeffrey Lurie are entertaining, uh, knowing them very well. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, sure that dis- I'm sure that discussion has, has been going on. And even though the organization is, you know, and Nick Sirianni, Nick Sirianni at, at the end, his final, his final meeting with you guys kind of said, no, Jalen Hurts is our guy. I mean, it's, it's, yep. that, that's the end of it. And um, when he said that, and you were in the room when he said that, 
did it have the ring of truth to you, or did it ha- did it have you know the coach kind of saying what he felt like he had to say at the moment, or do you think he genuinely feels that that he's he's perfectly fine going ahead with Jalen Hurts? I think he is fine going ahead with Jalen Hurts. Um, that being said, I don't I, he doesn't make that decision, right? Howie Roseman does, and and really honestly, Jeffrey Lurie does. Um, so, and I don't, from what I understand, I think Jeffrey uh, likes John Hurts, um, and I think Howie does as well. But Howie expended a second round pick on a guy he thought he'd be a backup. Um, you know, did John Hurts go out there and, and make a legitimate claim that he's going to be a long term franchise quarterback? I don't think so, right? Does that, can anyone say that? Yeah, no, so I think I think he earned right. so, the uh, in in lieu of an of an alternative. I think he earned the right to to do it for another season. Right, and and I know Howie, um, and uh, and I know how he thinks, and I think that's you know obviously Nick's going to have a play a huge role in it. I'm not I'm not discounting uh, his his opinion on that. But what, what do you what do you second this guy? Of course they're going to endorse. That's the only thing they could say at that point was to endorse Jalen Hurts for the future, and that may very well be. How it pans out. If you ask me, of the three options of let's say Hurts trade for a quarterback and draft one, I still think Hurts is the, is the most likely next season. Uh, that being said, um, you know if if John Schneider comes to Howie and says, "Hey, let's talk about moving Russell. Are you interested in Russell Wilson?" I bet you Howie says yes. Now, does that mean a trade happens? There's a lot that has to happen. You have to figure out if Russell Wilson wants to come here. He said last his, he said last year. Um, the Eagles weren't on that list. The same goes with Deshaun Watson. That being said, I don't think um, it's ever that easy because I think ultimately players realize that their options aren't as grand as they as they believe them to be. Yeah, I guess that's one of the questions I was going to ask you, Jeff, was because both of these guys, both Wilson and Watson, have either either they themselves or their representatives have put out lists of places that uh, if they had to go, this uh, okay, I'll go here. And Philadelphia never turned up on either guy's list. Uh, and but I'm but I'm just wondering in in light of the fact that the Eagles were a playoff team this year, the the seventh seed for what it was for what it's worth. But they actually, I think they went farther than people thought they were going to go. I think they proved to be a little bit better than people thought they were. Do you think there's a chance that either of those guys would now, in light of what happened this year, would look at Philadelphia as maybe a more desirable landing spot than they would have this time a year ago? I do, and if you look at Russell Wilson's list, it was the Cowboys, the Saints, the Bears, and the Raiders. Okay, the Cowboys extended Dak Prescott, Dak Prescott so that's not going to happen. The Saints, Sean Payton retired, so that's not probably going to happen. And the Bears went and drafted Justin Fields, so that's not going to happen. So that's three of the four teams that he named that they're not going to trade for Russell Wilson. So he's got to look at his situation and say, all right, if I want to move – you know, what are my opportunities? And let's look a little more closely at Philadelphia. Now, there's a lot that uh, people speculate with Russell that he wants to be in a certain market because he's, he's got, uh, you know, post-football career and he's got his wife, Sierra, who's a, he's a superstar, New York, Vegas, L.A., those types of places. But Philadelphia is like the sixth borough. I mean, and then if I'm Howie Roseman, I go to Russell and say, hey, look, you step right when you sign with – when you come to Philadelphia – you will be playing behind the best offensive line you've played in your entire career. That's got to be appealing if I'm Russell Wilson. You have a number one caliber wide receiver in Devontae Smith. You have a top five caliber tight end 
in Dallas Goddard. We have salary cap space where you can go out and get a receiver from a from a deep free agent class to be that number one, you know, one A guy. Um, Philly, to me, yes. You look at the defensive side; there are a lot of holes. Uh, you know, if you ask me, the rosters they're not close. Um, that being said, you you go to Russell, you all, you instantly make us much closer by coming here. And then Russell Wilson, I I don't completely buy that Philly was not involved. The Eagles would not have done all the work they did last off season, and I know that for a fact that they did on Russell on on Deshaun Watson in terms of they were sending people down into Houston investigating this this case and what you know legitimacy of it and, and you know they were talking to his representatives they wouldn't have done all that if they if they if they were told 100 percent that there's no way that deshaun watson would come to philadelphia and that being said they probably also realized that again watson can't just pick his spot as much as he thinks he can because there can be a lot of teams that are going to that are not even when this whole thing gets settled whatever it is there are going to be a bunch of teams. John Marr has already said that they will not, uh, the Giants in no way, shape, or form will trade for Deshaun Watson. Does that mean Philly will? I, I don't know or not. But I, I just I think that, that that's something that they probably feel that they can handle. Jeff McLean is our guest from the Inquirer. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff underscore McLean. Let me um, change the topic a little bit. Um, you were out there. You're out there at the Super Bowl, and Jason Kelsey, Eagle Center, was out there nominated for Walter Payton Man of the Year. Um, and he has not yet officially said whether he is coming back, but by all indications from what you write, he is coming back. What do you, uh, how do you view that right now? Well, I think, um, that he makes very clear that he has not made a decision. Uh, and the people I've talked to that are close to him, they say the same thing. Um, they, they don't know, he, um, what, what the decision ultimately will be, um, I've known Jason for a long time. I mean, he said, yeah, right now there's much more that, that has me returning than not. But he's like, I, I just need to get away from it for a while and just think, uh, you know, and see how I feel and think about, you know, the, the pros and cons in his head about coming back and doing it all again. It's a lot, as you guys know. It's like anything. It's, it's can you mentally invest yourself in something for um, what? And I know how Jason does it. I mean, this is a guy that completely invests his entire being into playing the, the game of football. That being said, there are a lot of reasons for him to, to return. Uh, one, he's, he's still probably one of the best centers in the world, that, you know, one of the best at what he does in the world. He's playing at a high level. He's relatively healthy. The Eagles have changed his practice schedule so that he can now recover much easier easily than he previously had the opportunity to. Uh, the team is seemingly on the upswing. He likes a lot of the young pieces uh, in the building. Um, he, lo- he loves the camaraderie of being around the guys. He has a contract that would pay him millions of dollars. They're going to have to restructure this contract before June 1st, and he's liable to make. That's a lot of money to leave on the table. Now, Jason doesn't play the game of football for money, but that being said, when you have as many opportunities as Jason Kelsey has post-football, you would think that, oh, wow, yeah, he has all this at his fingertips, he can go on the TV, he can go into work for the Eagles, he can do a million things. But in reality, for a lot of those guys, it's tough to step off that cliff. And so why not just kick the can down for another row because you still can play well and you're still making a lot of money and you're still on a team that has a chance to win it all. So I think seemingly, and I painted that all to Jason, he's like, you're right, there's, there's a lot more that would make me want to return than not return. That being said, he still has to kind of take time away and talk to his wife 
and and his family and figure out you know what his decision will be. But if you're if you're asking me, you put me on the spot. I think Jason Kelsey's back next year. Yeah, I th- uh, if I were to guess, I would say the same, Jeff. Um, for one thing, he played. He had a just a great season. I mean, he was really good. I mean, he was as good this year as he's ever been. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I think he has a good feeling about the team. Uh, he obviously has a tremendous relationship with his position coach. Uh, I think he likes the guys he's playing with. Um, I, I think I would be surprised. I would be surprised if he if he if he walked away. If if it came to that, let's say he he actually does just decide. You know what? I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being in pain every Monday. You know what? I'm just I'm I've just played myself out. I'm done. He walks away. What do you think they do? I mean, do you think do you think they 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 take Ike Siamalo and just you know when he comes back, just put him at center where he played. He played and played very well at Oregon State. He was actually very he was actually better at center than he was at guard or tackle. Or do you think they or do you think they moved Dickerson over? I I wouldn't. I mean, I I thought that Dickerson to me looked like he really settled in nicely at left guard and and he and Mylotta I thought would formed a really really good left side. I wouldn't want to break that up. If they had to replace if they had to replace Kelsey suddenly like now, my guess is the first the first guy up would probably be Sam Amalo. Yeah, I mean it's interesting they do they have they have a bunch of options on the roster to step into that role. Obviously, none of them is good as having Jason Kelsey there, but I mean, they have two starting caliber, uh, two guards that start that can do it. I mean, Isaac, as you said, have done it. it. I always thought that Isaac would be the guy to replace Jason, but over time, I, I, I didn't feel as confident about that because just talking to people there, they, they just felt like, Oh no, no, he's, he's a guard now. Um, Isaac's a really smart guy, so he can handle a lot of the those types of uh, calling out plays and protections and doing that kind of stuff. Um, but I just wonder if at this point they would do it. Uh, Dickerson, I think maybe a little. I would have him a little ahead of Isaac, although as you, as you mentioned, um, he did end up playing very well the rest of the season once he got settled at left guard. Um, he's a totally different type of uh, specimen than Jason Kelsey, just a big hulking guy. And it would be an adjustment for the team to go from someone who's 290 pounds to someone who's 330 pounds at that position. Um, doesn't mean you can't do it. And certainly you have centers that big, but um, I don't know. I feel like they, they like both those guys. I mean, Nate Herbig's a, uh, an option. Um, I don't think that would be the guy that they want to start there. I think they just like him in the reserve role. So then you have to start looking elsewhere. And, and there's a couple guys in the draft maybe that I think that they could see themselves drafting and put them in, put, put them in there right away. You're, you're not going to draft probably a center and, and well, you may drop one later in the first round, um, but you probably can get one in the second round. Um, I'm sure Ray, you've done probably much more work than I have on, on that class. Yeah. Linder, Linderbaum, couple, Linderbaum's a really good player, Jeff. He really Linderbaum's is. The best, right. Yeah. He's the best guy and he's probably a plug and play type of uh, center. And, um, but that being said, I, I really do feel ultimately that this is not a question they're going to have to ask themselves. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, the game today, the Super Bowl 630. Uh, what's your thoughts? How do you see this one going? I know it's like the you know the, the national pulse on this one isn't what it typically would be because it's just two teams that, you know, cert, you know they're not like kind of, uh, you know, established type of franchises. But right. That being said, I think it's really intriguing, um, and I think it's going. I think it could really pan out to be a really good game because you see two teams that um, 
are evenly matched. And uh, you, you see strengths of one team versus the weaknesses of another or, or vice versa. And, um, yeah, I think you have to start with that 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 L.A. Rams defensive line with Aaron Donald and Von Miller and all the other guys they got versus that Bengals offensive line, which you know is just not up to snuff. Um, that could be where the game is won and lost. And you know, the Bengals kind of seem to get things straightened out um, against the Chiefs uh, more so than they did in the prior game, in which Burrow, Joe Burrow was sacked nine times. So if they can play that way and play this quick game, um, they can offset that. Um, but the Rams, they're, I mean, they're loaded, uh, you know, I mean, especially offensively. I mean, Cooper Cup is just sometimes just unstoppable. Uh, he can just run every every round on the tree and and they can flex him out it's like if they're worried about the Bengals doubling him um they can get him out of the slot and they can get him matched up uh, against corners um one on one i mean those those Bengals safeties are good they're they're the key to that defense if you ask me and that will dictate a lot of of what they do defensively um but if you're asking me ultimately i i you know, if you if you want to just pick the two quarterbacks against each other, Matthew Stafford and Joe Burrow, I just think that Stafford is more prone to make mistakes than than Burrow, and that's why I would tip slightly the scales towards the Bengals. I know that I don't know how I could just as easily pick the Rams for many other reasons, but I, I like the Bengals and Burrow. Um, I don't I don't know why. I just I just feel this kid has got it, um, and I just don't think he'll make them make a mistake. And I think. Staff, although he's played really well this year, and he's a really good quarterback. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes he just he just makes bad decisions. And I think that if he makes one or two in this game, it'll cost him. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'm, I'm really interested. Ray's going the other way, and I'll let him explain. I've not said. I'll, I'll say in the next segment. But Ray, go ahead. You can address that. No, I think you kind of said it, Jeff. I mean, I, I just I just look at that matchup of the Rams front seven against the Bengals offensive line, yeah. which is, I mean, they're not good. I mean, they're they're not good, uh, and you know I just I, I can I you can have I think I agree with everything you said about Burrow. I think he's a I think he's a special special player. But last year you saw what happened when the Kansas City Chiefs lost their two tackles, and you had Patrick Mahomes, who's a great quarterback. You saw what happened when they got up against that Beng, uh, the 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 Buccaneers defensive line. They just took over the game, and the quarterback just couldn't make a play. I just kind of see yeah. that I just kind of see that mismatch at the line of scrimmage is going to be. Just too much, too much for Burrow and and those because he's got Burrow's great and he's got great playmakers. But I just think from tackle to tackle, that's where the game's going to be decided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could just as easily uh, pick it for that reason. Um, sometimes I think McVeigh too. Um, if I'm if I'm going to give another reason why I think maybe the Bengals will win is it's like I, I like Sean McVay. I think he's a really good coach. He's a good play caller. But but sometimes I think he gets too conservative and. I just want. Sometimes I worry about him in, in big big situations as well. I'm not saying that um, Zach Taylor's you know Vince Lombardi, but um, I, I kind of like him a little more than than McVay in this situation. But you're right. I mean, I, I, I'm probably giving. I'm probably overlooking just the. And as I meant, I even mentioned it at the top. I mean, that you went you went and lose it up front, right? And that that could be just as much reason why the Rams will win and be victorious um, later tonight. Well, I think it has the chance to be a really fun Super Bowl. That I know. Yeah. And Jeff McClain, yep. it is a pleasure uh, talking to you. We will check back with you. Oh, lots to look forward to. Free agency, draft, all that good stuff. And thanks for always being available, man. Great, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, thank you. There's Jeff McClain.
Um, I, I mean, really, Ray, one of the things I like about this, and the Rams are, is it now four, four and a half? I've seen it it's both uh, over the last couple of days. I think it was down to three and a half this morning. Oh, sweet. Um, well, the Rams are, you know, a little bit of a favorite, a little more than a field goal anyway. Um, but I, I, I think this is one that's more wide open than a lot we've had. And we've had a lot of good Super Bowls in recent years. Actually, how about coming up? We will talk about some of the great Super Bowls, some of the great finishes of Super Bowls in recent times. 215-592-9494. He's Ray Didinger. I'm Glenn Mack. Now, good time to get in if you want to check in on uh, the Super Bowl or the Eagles or the Sixers or whatever's on your mind. Ray and Glenn on 94 WIP. Ray Dinger, Glenn Macnow, 94 WIP, Super Bowl tonight. Ray, I, I am just going to pick the Bengals, I, I think, really more out of my heart and what I want to see than what I know to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it's a toss-up, right? So if I'm getting three and a half or four, I will definitely take the Bengals because I'll take the points. Um, I think that they are kind of on one of these Philadelphia Eagle magical runs, and I understand magical runs are good until they end. I mean, here's how the game is going to end. The Bengals kicker is going to hit a 48-yard field goal to win the game as the clock runs out, right? That's kind of Well, he seems – if any kicker is going to win the game, it's going to be him. Yeah. He's, he, uh, he, he, is, he, he, he doesn't think he can miss. He is unflappable. Uh, and there was a, uh, a good story this morning on uh, CBS Sports, which ranked the uh, greatest endings of the Super Bowls. Of uh, you know, So I think it did the 15 greatest endings of Super Bowls. And we've had some really good ones in recent years. Remember, we went through that stretch. God, it seemed like it was forever, where the Super Bowls were just all bad games. They were blowouts. They were Boring. Remember that? Yeah. That was when the NFC was killing the AFC. Yeah. It was like, what, 12 out of 13 years or something in a row. And there were just a lot of bad games. And, and I don't know, last 15 years or so, we've had some great ones, of course, for our line of thinking. Of course, the greatest one was Super Bowl 52. Um, and they write about that. They, they said that was only the 12th greatest ending in the history of the Super Bowl. Really? Uh, yeah. And I'll read you what they said. And I'll give you maybe their top five. Um, they wrote, people forget that the Eagles actually trailed in this game before taking the lead on Zach Ertz's 11-yard touchdown pass from Nick Foles with 221 left. Philadelphia extended its lead to eight points with a field goal after Derek Barnett recovered Brandon Graham's forced fumble of Tom Brady. Similar to Super Bowl, i got to do the math, 46, Brady was able to get the Patriots in position for a last-second heave into the end zone with the entire city of Philadelphia holding his breath. Brady's pass once again fell harmlessly to the turf as Eagles fans could finally celebrate the franchise's first Super Bowl win. There you go. Nicely uh-huh. written. Brian DiArdo. You know what? Maybe let's just hear it. Brady lines them up. He's back again. He steps up. He's hit. He stumbles. He is throwing it deep for the end zone, and it is batted around and incomplete. And the game is over. The game is over. The Philadelphia Eagles are Super Bowl champions. Eagles fans everywhere, this is for you. Let the celebration begin. Brilliant. That's just beautiful. You know, there are three plays from that game that I have stored on my phone. Uh, and so I can p- play them whenever I want. That is one of them. Okay. Well, you know the other two. Well, the strip sack. Correct. And the Ertz touchdown? 
No, the Philly Special. Oh, the Philly Special. Okay. Although the Earth's Touchdown would be worth adding as well. Uh, but yeah, and I probably have watched the Philly Special, I, I swear to God, 500 times since the Super Bowl. I just will call it up at random. Uh, but you know, here what was, you know what was interesting was um, last week when we had when we t- played Best of Tell Us Your Story, yeah, and we replayed the interview, the excerpt of the interview we had with Gene Steratore, who was referee in that game, uh, talking about how close Nick Foles came to where where he lined up. The the the, the difference between that being legal and illegal was frighteningly close. Remember, yes. and he said, yes. "I really had to watch it." And he said, I'm convinced he was okay, but it's, it, was, it was a much more of a touch-and-go kind of thing than people realized. Look, one thing about that game, and ultimately it benefited the Eagles, but I just think it benefited football fans. And this is, I mean, I know, my, you know I'm, I have a slant in this, but I do believe this, is the referees decided, look, this whole season has been really uh, hurt by the number of ticky-tack penalties and controversial calls, so today... Let's let them play. Mm-hmm. And they did. And a pass that was incomplete, you know, the, the Steelers' tight end had a pass that he certainly appeared to catch to me a couple weeks before that in the playoffs that was really incomplete. Well, guess what? With Zach Ertz, it was complete. I was fine with that. Uh, was Corey Clement in the end zone or out of bounds? Pretty close. He's in the end zone. Uh, the Nick Foles won. You know, was he line up illegally? Their Patriots fans still bitter about that. They let them play. Right. All right. So here right. you go. Yeah, I I would say and one of the things that I'm one of the reasons I'm excited about this game uh, is you have two teams here in the Bengals and the Rams that commit very few penalties. Oh, that's good. I mean, the Bengals were the were the least penalized team in the NFL this year, and the Rams were third were third best in terms of avoiding penalties. So these are two of the three least penalized teams in the NFL, and Ron Torbert, who's the uh, who's the referee. Uh, is a guy that uh, is his crew through the third fewest penalties in, in the season. Now, he's working with a different crew today. He's the referee, and the other guy, the other officials are from different crews. Right. So it's not, it's not exactly his crew, but his crew, the one he was in charge of this year, was another, was another crew that was noteworthy for not throwing a lot of flags. So you've got him as the referee, and you've got two teams that did not commit penalties all year. So I think you're. I think the opportunity, the chance is there that you're going to have a pretty clean game. I hope they let it play out that way. All right, here you go. The five greatest finishes in the history of the Super Bowl, according to this story. Oh, God, number five. Why don't we? Why don't just break my dad's heart? Giants twenty, Bills nineteen, Super Bowl twenty five. Wide right, Scott Norwood. Mm-hmm. I personally wouldn't put it on the list, but there you have it. Uh, Super Bowl. You know what? I can do Roman numerals, but it always takes me a minute. Forty three. Thank you. Steelers 27, Cardinals 23. That was a great Super Bowl, Ray. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Steelers are ahead. Larry uh, Fitzgerald gets a couple of late touchdowns. Arizona gets the lead with 237 to go. Roethlisberger just has that drive at the end. 40-yard completion to Santonio Holmes. Uh, Steelers in position for the score. And then one of the great plays in Super Bowl history that, that uh, passed to Holmes. Perfect, perfect throw and a great, great, yeah. great catch. Great one. Uh, number three, Super Bowl 34, Rams 23, Dick Vermeil. Mm-hmm. Vermeil's Rams beat the Titans. You know what I remember about that Super Bowl? What's that? I had to um, go to a Super Bowl party, and it was a snowstorm in Philadelphia that day. 
That's all I remember. But the Rams beat the Titans 23-16, the game that ends on the one-yard line. Kevin Dyson catches the slant pass. Looks like he's going to go in, and Mike Jones, Rams linebacker, uh, stops him one yard short of the goal line as as, um, Dyson reaches out. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Right. And you see Vermeil on the sidelines, like, not sure. Yeah, nobody was sure. Right. Nobody was sure. And Mike Jones does a does a great job because the the Titans had walked the ball right down the field. You know, McNair was had had driven them right down the field. And the, and the, it's a great play call. It's a really, really good play call where yeah, you know, where Dyson comes underneath and they and the whole play is designed for him to be the guy to get open. And Mike Jones Mike Jones saw it. You know, Mike Jones saw exactly what they were doing and got in perfect position to make the tackle that saves the game on the very last play. It doesn't get much more dramatic than that. No, it doesn't, although this one is pretty dramatic, too. The second-best Super Bowl finish of all time was 49. Uh, Patriots beat the Seahawks 28-24, to and, of course, that is the one that people are still scratching their head on what Pete Carroll was thinking as uh, the uh, Seahawks have the ball at the one-yard line at the end with the chance to win, and Marshawn Lynch in the backfield, and what do they do? Threw a pass. And yeah, Malcolm Butler intercepts. That was a ridiculous call, but obviously great, great drama. Uh, and number one, they say, and pretty good, although I may go with either of the two previous ones, Super Bowl forty-two, Giants 17, Patriots 14. That was February 2008, and it is uh, Eli Manning's, the helmet catch, the, the throw, and then the helmet catch to David Tyree, and then they drive down the field, and, and he hits Plaxico Burris in the end zone with 39 seconds to go. Although the Patriots come back and almost connect on a Brady to Randy Moss desperate fourth down pass at the end. Mm-hmm. And what these have in common, I think, is most of these have been. I'm just going to read you the years that these occurred. Okay, 2008, 2015, 2000. Uh, 2009, there's only one in the top 10 that was before 2002, that before 2000. So what it tells you is we've had some great Super Bowls. We have. I mean, for, for far too many years, I mean, for the first, the, about the first 25 of the 50 Super Bowls, most of the games, I hate to say, were kind of duds. 52 to 17. Yeah, they really were. They really were. And we, you went through that one whole stretch where the NFC was just crushing the AFC. And mostly it was teams from the NFC East. It was it was you know it was either it was either the Cowboys or it was the Giants or it was the it was Washington that was just going in and just mauling whoever was coming over from the AFC. Yeah, usually Denver, it felt like. Yeah, it seemed like it was that way a lot. And um, but now o- over the last uh, twenty years, I mean, there have been far more good ones than bad. And you know maybe listen, we're on a great run in this postseason. I mean, the postseason, the playoff football in this postseason has been. Tremendous. The the four division the four division games were all great games. The two conference championship games went right down to the wire. So maybe we're on a roll where we're going to have another great Super Bowl. I sure hope so. And the makings sure are there. They're, they, yeah. You've got you know the makings are there. The two teams, the composition of the two teams, their styles of play, uh, the fact that you have prolific passing games going against relatively porous secondaries uh, sort of lends itself to make you think that this could be a game with uh, a lot of scoring and a lot of big plays. Yeah, I think so too. John over in Jersey, what's on your mind today, John? Good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. I um, wanted to say something about when you guys were talking about the designated hitter. 
And um, I agree with Ray uh, on this one. Um, you know, it's the whole thing is what they do is they, over the years, what they have done, I, I, I know you guys remember this because you, you are as old as me. They used to call the American League the junior circuit. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. Okay. And there was nuances that were different between the National League and the American League. The one being that the umpire in the American League would always stand directly over the catcher so that American League would get higher strikes and the National League umpire would kind of stand in next to the left side over the shoulder and they would get the low strike. They've taken all that away. The strategy that's involved in the National – to be an American League manager, it, it, it's like being Pat Riley with the I, di- I so disagree, and I know that's, that's something oh, yeah. a lot of people say. Um, there's really not a whole lot. I, I think it actually adds strategy because it adds more variables. It adds more talent. There's more things you can do with it. What's the strategy with a pitcher? If a guy's on base, he's going to try to bunt. Where's this? What's the strategy that I'm missing? Strategy's all in, like, you know, baseball is a game of survival. You have chess pieces on your You didn't answer my question. Gun. Let me, I'm going to ask you the question again. When, it, when there's a man on base and the pitcher's up, he tries to bunt. That's right. the strategy. What, what other strategy is there involved? Strategy would be, would be to, uh, put, am I going to bring a pinch hitter in? To do the same job and base my pitcher only after letting them pitch. You know what? Things. One of the things we've seen in recent years, and I'm not saying this is a good part of baseball because it's not, but starting pitchers are going out earlier in both leagues. Uh, and in the American League, the, the team, this was uh, not this year, but not last year, but the year before. Do you know what team had the shortest outings by starting pitchers overall? The I'll Yankees. Be- the Yankees. There is no more American League team than the Yankees. Now, again, Ray, I'm not saying this is a good part of baseball, but you know what it is. They have the starting pitcher come out, try to go five, and then they go to this parade of relief pitchers who can all throw 99 miles an hour. Right. And they all throw one. Now, my point is not that the DH is good because of that. My point is that's irrelevant to the DH. Starting pitchers batting are are, – I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought here. Um, They don't take out starting pitchers – earlier in the National League anymore. They just take starting pitchers out in both leagues. Yeah, they take them out routinely. Right. So that part of the strategy, oh, am I going to you know, take out my starting pitcher because he's up? It doesn't matter anymore. The game that used to be that game isn't it anymore. I'm not saying it's better, but I do think the DH will help. And on that one, you and I will never agree. No. Which is cool. 215-592-9494. He's Ray Didinger. I'm Glenn Mack now. We'll come back. We'll wrap it up um, after this on 94WIP. Ray Didinger, Glenn Mack now, 94WIP. All right, Ray, a lot of stuff going on. Maybe you and I forgot to discuss something, one or two items. Let's go to our producer, Moshe Kravitz, and find out what did we forget to talk about today. Well, you guys didn't forget to talk about this first thing because it just came out. Yeah, I was just going to mention this. Go ahead, Moshe. Yeah, according to Chris Mortensen... There's a belief that Colts quarterback Carson Wentz will probably be traded or released before March 19th. The reason for that timing is March 19th is when $15 million in his base salary would become guaranteed. His future in Indianapolis looks, quote, bleak. Wow. Ray, uh, what a disaster. Um, I, I take no 
you know, joy in that, to be honest with you. I mean, whatever. He quit on this city and turned his back on the franchise and did all that. But it is astounding to me what he fell from, from what we saw that second year, that Super Bowl season, when he was the MVP until he got hurt, to now a guy who was traded by the Eagles to the team they wanted to go to, to Frank Reich. Yep, seemed like the perfect situation. How did it just go so bad for him, Ray? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, to me, it's it's going to go down as if if Chris is right, and and you and I both know Chris Mortensen. He's to me one of the most credible reporters that's out there. No doubt. Um, I mean, he. I'm sure he got this from Chris Ballard. I'm sure he got this from the Colts general manager because Chris Ballard, at the end of the regular season when he met with the press, was asked about Carson. Was asked about the quarterback situation and gave no assurances that Wentz would be back. Yeah. It was it was pretty startling, actually. His answer it was, "Well, we're going to have to see about that." Yeah, uh, which was sort of a, "Are you kidding me?" And now, so that's why this, uh, while it's surprising, uh, and when you put it in the context of his statement at the end of the year, kind of makes sense. And and as Moshe reported it, this was what Chris was reporting that that his, the, it is over for him in Indianapolis, and he will either be. He will either be traded or he will be released outright. Well, I can't imagine somebody's going to take him in trade and pay that 15 mil if you assume that if I don't take him, they'll cut him and then we can try to pick him up much cheaper. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That'll be something to watch. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Moshe, I don't know if you can top that one. <laughs> well, maybe not, but uh, tonight could possibly be likely maybe – Al Michaels' last NBC broadcast alongside Chris Collinsworth and, and with that whole crew. It's also his 11th Super Bowl that he's called, tying him with Pat Summerall for most by a play-by-play man of all time. Uh, so he's says he's not retiring. He gets plenty of time to play golf. But at this kind of turning point in Al Michaels' career, I wanted to know if you guys could reflect on, on Al Michaels' career to this point. Sure. First of all, former Tell Us Your Story guest, which we really enjoyed, and uh, a guy who arguably made the greatest call in the history of sports, being the 1980 Olympics. Uh, well, I'll let Ray kind of put it in perspective, but I will say this. The, the rumor has it that Al Michaels next year is going to go to Amazon Prime, which is going to start streaming exclusively 15 Thursday night games, which... Uh, you will get if, if uh, on over-the-air TV if you live in the home market, but otherwise not be able to get, which means that a lot of people are going to be watching these games on Amazon Prime. It's a it's a big moneymaker for Amazon, and they're trying to get Al Michaels there, and apparently the, the deal is going to allow him to call a couple NBC games, maybe one playoff game, but that's what he's going to do. By the way, Ray, just as an aside, and then I'll let you reflect on Michaels. If that happens, is that going to be the thing that will finally bring you to streaming? <laughs> if they take the NFL off of TV, you're going to, Ray, you're going to finally have to get there. Nah, you kind of know how I feel about Thursday night football. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, Moshe asked, perspective, Al Michaels' career. Uh, well, I think, he's the, I think he's the best football play-by-play man uh, that I've ever heard. Um, I think that he's uh, his his ability to call the game, bring some personality to it, a little bit of a sense of humor, and never get in the way of his color man. And he's worked with he's worked with all of them. He's worked with Collinsworth for a long time. He worked with John Madden. He worked with Deardorff. I mean, he's worked with he's worked with all the different color guys, and he makes them all look good. Uh, and uh, I just think his yeah his uh, his ability to paint the picture, his preparation, 
he's he's never he's never at a loss for um, for for rules and I mean he's just on top of everything and I just I know I'm a little bit not great but I know I'm somewhat and I've seen how he comes in and I've seen how he prepares unlike a lot of play-by-play guys he will actually sit in with his color analyst and watch tape together he goes into every broadcast having done his homework and fully prepared and it shows it shows in the product and that's why he's still geez he's 77 years old and he's still as much in demand as he's ever been. And I saw that the possibility, I do think the Amazon thing is going to happen. It seems like that's pretty much a done deal. But the possibility is ESPN is coming back, and they would like to get him back to do Monday Night Football on ESPN, which he did for, which he did for a long, long time. Uh, and I, it's, it's, the only question is, can he juggle both of those things? But apparently he's considering that option. Wow. The guy his age, to be that good and that in demand is, is uh, pretty impressive. And and yes, Collinsworth also today, and and I, I I liked Collinsworth, and I'm telling you that Super Bowl Fifty Two, when it just seemed that he so wanted the storyline to be that Tom Brady was going to lead him back to victory, right up to the moment where when the pass falls incomplete at the end, you audibly hear him groan soured me forever on Chris Collins. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, you're not alone. I mean, the, uh, a, a lot of the people in the city heard that groan. Yes. The Eagles fans, and who always who always said, and my wife was one of them, would always say, why does Chris Collinsworth hate the Eagles? And I always said, that's not really true. It's just, you know... I, He's. I think he's an equal opportunity critic. You know, he'll he'll. You know, if somebody, some team does something wrong, if some coach does something wrong, players something bonehead, he'll say it. You know, and and, and fans of those teams take that stuff personally. But I always thought he called a pretty straight up, honest game until that day. And I have yep. to say, he totally he totally bought into the storyline that here comes Tom Brady. Uh, here comes Tom Brady riding to the rescue once again, and he wanted that to happen. He yes, really he wanted that to happen. Yes, he was rooting he for did. it to happen, yep. and you know that's that that's the one thing that's the one thing an announcer cannot allow happen. And all the stuff people had said about him, you know, hating the Eagles. I don't know if he ever hated the Eagles, but on that particular day, he was certainly rooting for Tom Brady. Amen. What's next, Mosh? Well, uh, we're nine days into the Olympics. I want to oh. see if you guys have watched any of it. And Ray? if you have watched any of it, any thoughts you care to share? Ray, I watched for the first time last night. Oh, really? Yeah, well, so we went to dinner at our next-door neighbor's house. Uh, and uh, Happy birthday, Sangita, by the way. And uh, I got home, uh, like, 10-something, ten 10-ish. And uh, it's like, I didn't want to go to bed, but I didn't want to invest in really watching anything. And I said, like, oh, let's see what's on the Olympics. So I turned it on the main network, and they had snow dancing or whatever, <laughs> acrobats and half pipes, you know, like that stuff that mm-hmm. I just had no interest in. Right. And so I just, like, put on the guide, like, what else can I watch? And, Ray, I have to admit, I spent mm, a good 20, 25 minutes invested in Great Britain versus China curling. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The Brits took them down. Well, I figured they would. They were big favorites. Well, I had the big lead, and then China's coming back, but the Brits uh, pulled out a 7-6 victory, and it was the first Olympics I watched. And, I mean, we've you know, I have a soft spot for curling. I actually had done it earlier in my life, and it's one of those things you can watch without tremendous emotion or investment of energy. Yeah, that's true. And so I did. Uh, and I know, uh, to Moshe's question, you've clearly been – watching the figure skating but less for what's on the ice than who's behind the boards correct correct i've been uh, i've been watching the figure skating because my son is shooting it 
<laughs> yeah, of course. I have a I have a rooting interest there. I'm uh, I'm admiring the camera work, and I was I was really I was really happy for Nathan Chen, uh, the, you know the uh, the American uh, male figure skater, the best the best skater probably in the world, who probably should have won a gold medal four years ago, but had a rough tournament and has kind of been living with it ever since, and came back this year to redeem himself and did. I mean his. Uh, if you have a chance, if you if you didn't see it live, um, you can YouTube it and see his uh, his his long skate, his long program, the free skate. Uh, it's absolutely spectacular. It's it's one it's one of the great freestyle skating exhibitions you will ever see. I didn't realize that they've they've changed the uh, the format that they, they you can now use that the music you skate to can now be vocal. It used to always be you yeah. ha- it had to be instrumental. Now it can yeah. be vocal. Yeah. And he yeah. and he skated to a kind of a compilation, kind of a mash of Elton John stuff. But most of it was Rocket Man. And uh, it's um, Nathan Chen, I mean, hit it way out of the park and won the gold medal and I was really happy to see that because David David has been around him through the practices and through the competition and said that he seems like a very nice guy and he was kind of rooting for him and boy he came through in a big way well, I didn't notice Nathan Chen but I did notice the cameraman there behind the glass and David looked, was spectacular oh he was all over it alright Ray Bengals 27 Rams 24 I'm going to pick the upset you? Uh, I'm going with the Rams uh, I just think I, I just I just think that their defense their front seven is going to be too good uh, and uh, I love Joe Burrow, and I'm sure he'll get this opportunity again. I just, I just think that the the Rams defense is going to be too much for the right. Cincinnati Bengals offensive line. So I'm saying Rams 30 to 24. All right, uh, should be a good game. Moshe Kravitz, thanks to you. Let's get out of here. Give John Johnson his turn. Ray and I'll see you next week. And Ray, I will see you Tuesday night. Puddler's Kitchen and Tap, six thirty to nine thirty. Big charity event for Philadelphia youth basketball, hosted by Mark Zumoff. Brews with Zoos. We'll see you then. And Ray and I'll see you next Saturday on ninety four WIP.